בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, we survived another fast. 17th of Tammuz is one of our many fasts, and it always seems like when you ask people how was the fast, people always, you know, during the fast, it's like they're barely surviving. At the end of the fast, depends. If, they, uh, if they're surrounded by friends, they can go fast for another six hours. They're not even, not even in a hurry to go eat. Oh, you have a cigarette. You have a small sip maybe here and there. You're not acting as hungry as you did five minutes ago before the fast was over. Take your time. But if you're alone, bored, then you're acting like uh, you're starving you never ate before. But the thing is, though, is that every one of us needs to ask ourselves, did we really achieve the point of the fast? You fasted. You didn't eat all day. You didn't drink all day. If it's uh, Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av, you didn't shower. It's a very uncomfortable day. And in a world that was, in this generation, built just to comfort you, it's unusual. It's an unusual feeling to be uncomfortable. In past days, if you talk about the uh, times of our grandparents, and of course any time before that, being uncomfortable was normal. If you wanted to go to the bathroom, you had to sometimes run out of the city, right outside of the borders of the city, to go to the actual bathroom because they would have it really far away from where the city was because they didn't want it was a hole in the ground. They didn't want the uh, city to be infested with the smell and uh, all the uh, germs and so on. In the days of the Gemara, of course, uh, you see that there's stories of how they actually had to run away from the city where to go to the bathroom. But this wasn't just 2,000 years ago. This is even 100 years ago in some cases. Of course, plumbing advanced in 2,000 years, but the point I'm trying to say is that being uncomfortable was very much a normal part of day-to-day life. In today's world, being uncomfortable is uncomfortable. It's unusual. Because everything we do is for convenience. If you, got, if you want a business idea, everyone always asks me business ideas. I reviewed a lot of businesses in my time, and uh, people always ask for business ideas, investment ideas, what should I invest in, what should I start, what kind of idea, everyone always wants to ask me to be a partner, I never want to be a partner, and the simple reason for why I don't want to be a partner is not because it's bad ideas, because sometimes it's my ideas, I tell them, here's an idea, go with it. It's not that, it's that I know my own yetzara. I know that if I go into business, I'm not coming out. I'm not going to give you lectures every Tuesday night. I can't do, I can't do 50-50. If you want to start a business, I want to build an empire. I want to learn Torah, I want to be a Talmud Chacham. It's either one or the other. It can't, be, it can't be this one and that one. I can't do, I can't do both. Other people maybe. Rambam can do it. That's Rambam. Many other people can possibly do it. They can learn Torah, they can work in business. Me, I can't. I know my Yetzirah. But anyway, people ask me all the time, what, sh- what should I invest in? What should I start? And I tell them, the best business in the world is convenience. Provide convenience for people. Whatever way you know how to give convenience. If it's a phone application, great. If it's a uh, restaurant, if it's a uh, marketing company, if it's a clothing company, whatever it is, it doesn't really make a difference. The product is irrelevant. Whether you sell t-shirts or you sell phones, whatever you sell is irrelevant. The point of a successful business 
is to provide convenience. Make it easy for them to give you money. If you make it easy for them to give you money, you have a good business. If it's hard to get to the cashier, you're going to go broke. Simple. Simple business advice, but most companies, believe it or not, don't follow this. The ones that do end up being on the stock exchange and become very successful. The ones that don't end up either staying a small business between Abba and Ima and fight every week about how they're going to pay the bills and how they're going to pay the overpaid employees, or it's going to go bankrupt. Why? Because they made it difficult for people to go to the cashier. So, in a world that's full of convenience, every business tries to provide this convenience. This is not a unique idea. This is not my own chidush. All businesses try to provide convenience. We live in that world. So we feel uncomfortable being uncomfortable. It's not, it's not a normal feeling because you wake up in the morning... You press a button, coffee is made. You press another button, the shower is already warming up the water for you. Whenever you're ready, you can go inside. You press another button, the, uh, the car is warming up in case you live in a cold town. Just press buttons. You press another button, you see the news, what's happening in, around the entire world. The entire world, not uh, just in your community, your neighborhood, your synagogue, the entire world. One button, you know what's going on in the entire world in one, one sentence. Dow Jones, up 500 points pre-market. You already know everything's okay. Dow Jones, down 300. Oh, okay, we'll have some problems. we we'll have to look into it. One sentence, you know what's going on. Simple button makes your life go. So now, when you wake up, and all of a sudden, you really can't press the button that tells you the coffee to go. And you can't press the microwave that warms up the grilled cheese sandwich. And you can't press go for this, and you can't press go for that. What do I do? You're you're left with nothing to do. You have no idea what to do with yourself. I remember when I first stopped smoking. Before I stopped smoking, I said, what do you do with your hands? And my wife asked me, what do you mean, what do you do with your hands? I said, what do you do with your hands? When, you know, if you, let's say you want to stand outside. She asked me, why would I want to stand outside? I said, don't you want to go outside sometimes? Said, no, it's 95 degrees. It's Florida. I said, okay, so what do you do with your hands in general? She said, I don't know. I use my hands if I don't need to, if I need to, if I don't use them if I don't need to. To me, that was like as, as silly as that sounds. As a smoker for 20 years, it sounds strange that you have nothing to do with your hands. Because part of the fixation is not just an oral fixation. It's not just a nicotine addiction. It's something to do with your hands because you got used to it and you got to a point where you thought you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to move your hands. You're supposed to do this constantly. So for me, this was like a mental battle. Little did I know that a couple of days after you smoke, you don't care about that. You don't pay attention to what you do with your hands. You do other stuff. You write. You, I don't know, press the buttons like everybody else. There's nothing wrong with it. You text, you do something, you tweet. So, but we got used to it. We got used to it. We got used to a life that's full of buttons and full of things that are convenient to such an extent that we think it's normal. It's normal that if you press a button, you know the world news. It's normal if you press a button, the coffee is made. It's normal if you press a button, the car turns on and all of these thousands of pieces of equipment 
that are put together all move simultaneously and make the engine go and you get to your place within five minutes. It's normal. So when you can't do that anymore, at least for 25 hours or 24 hours, or in today's case, what is it, uh, 15 hours, it's unusual. It's uncomfortable. So you finally survived. You reached the end of the fast. The whole day you're thinking about food when usually you barely have one meal. You've survived the fast, but then we arrive right now and we all have to ask ourselves a question. Did we achieve the point of the fast? Does God actually care whether you eat or not? God doesn't go to sleep. God doesn't fast. So does God care whether you eat or not? If He cared whether you eat or not, then He would say you have to fast all year. Don't ever eat. Or He would tell you you have to fast once a week. If it's so important to fast, fast once a week. Shabbat once a week. Fast once a week. You ate overtime on Shabbat. Sunday should be a day of fasting. Probably be healthy too. As much as we eat on Shabbat, psh, people increase their body weight 5% a week just on Shabbat. So if, if fasting was so important, fast every Sunday. The answer is, no, Hashem does not care if you eat. As a matter of fact, He specifically tells us this. He tells us to the prophet, Yoel, the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verse 13, it's mentioned here in Masechet Ta'anit, page, um, uh, what is this? 15a. And it says, So here the prophet is telling Am Yisrael, rend your hearts, not your clothes. The people started doing tshuva. What's the first thing people do when they do tshuva? They learn from the prophet Daniel. Prophet Daniel told him, hey, do tshuva, start fasting. But he was worried, is God listening, is God not listening? So Daniel's best friend was the uh, angel Gabriel. Best friend. We barely have human best friends. He had an angel's best friend. So in chapter 2, verse 10 of, uh, of the book of Daniel, Daniel is talking to his best friend. He said, I'm worried. Is Hashem accepting my prayers or not? The Malach Gavriel says to him, don't worry. Since you started fasting, your prayers started, uh, started becoming acceptable to Hashem. So fasting is working. But here the prophet Joel is saying the opposite. He's saying, listen, forget about the fast. Forget about ripping your clothes, putting uh, all types of ashes on your head which is, we don't do anymore, and the, the Catholics took over and ruined it. Same thing with prayers, by the way. You know, in the old days, when we used to pray, we used to bow. We used to bow on all fours. The Muslims ruined it. We're not allowed to do it, except on Yom Kippur. Amen. This is actually how we used to pray. We used to pray on all fours. Just like the Muslims, you see them on, uh, in, in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. They pray, they stop traffic. Five million people are waiting to go home. They're praying in the middle of the street. They don't do any cheshbon to anybody. Nothing. Middle of Brooklyn, middle of Manhattan, middle of anything. They get, everyone has to pray in the same place. All the guys that have the uh, little huts, 
They leave the huts, they put the carpets on the floor, and they start praying. No bushah. They're not ashamed at all. They're excited. They're celebrating it. Middle of the street, they pray. In the airports, everywhere. If only Am Yisrael was as proud about their prayer. That's actually what goes to their credit, by the way. Foolishness also goes to their credit when they use the name of God to kill his nation, too. But nonetheless, we, as Jews, used to pray like this in Bet HaMikdash, in the days of the Gemara. We used to go on all fours and actually pray to Hashem, beg Hashem to give us forgiveness. But they came and ruined it, so we're not allowed to do it anymore. That's why we pray the way we do. By the way, that's why, for example, we do, when you bow on Tefillah uh, Shemun in the old days, you would go all down. you go all the way down. So anyway, here we have the prophet telling us the opposite of what Daniel said. In Daniel, we learned fasting is good. Prophet Joel is telling us, listen, forget about the fast. Forget about ripping your clothes. Forget about bowing on the floor. Forget about the ashes. Forget about everything. The only point of the fast is to rip your heart apart. What does it mean, rip your heart apart? Do tshuva. Do tshuva. So in essence, this is not a contradiction. This is bochaba. In essence, this is not a contradiction. In essence, what this means, this is actually him supplementing it. The prophet Daniel told us, when you fast, Hashem views it in a positive way. But the prophet Joel is explaining only if the fast includes tshuva. If your fast includes using lack of material, lack of food, for you to replace that with spirituality, with learning Torah, with prayer, it's a good fast. But if all day you're sleeping, you're better off eating. If you're sleeping all day, just eat. Just make a difference. If you're planning to go back to your life after the fast and nothing changed, don't fast. You're wasting your time. This is why in Yom Kippur, it says, Chazal says it, if someone is not planning on doing tshuva after Yom Kippur, it's better off they don't even do it. Why don't the rabbis teach this? Because they say, listen, people are so crazy now that if you tell them you're better off not doing it, they're not going to come at all. So don't tell them. But the point is, is that the point of the fast is for us to do tshuva. That's the point of the fast. So now, we have ourselves a situation. We fasted, but we only realized what the point was now. The fast is over. What do we do? The good news is, is that today, the 17th of Tammuz, is the beginning, is the beginning of the tshuva time for Am Yisrael. If you ever wanted to start doing tshuva, this is exactly the time. 17th of Tammuz is the beginning of the disaster. There's the next three weeks, every single day happen really b- bad things happen throughout history, culminating with Tisha B'Av. On Tisha B'Av, we lost the two temples. We got bad decrees from Hashem, not only for the two temples, but also for being in, uh, staying in the desert for the next 40 years. A lot of really, really horrible things happened throughout history, both in the, in the Torah, as well as just regular history that we know, recorded history that we know of. Uh, even events, major events that happened during the Holocaust, a lot of really bad things happened on Tisha B'Av. Uh, it's actually such a uh, spiritually negative day for Am Yisrael 
that all the beaches all the, in, in Israel put a red flag in the ocean because the most amount of drowning happens on Tisha B'Av. So they tell people, don't even, go to, go, don't even go into the water. Dangerous waters. So if anyone needs proof that God runs the world, just go to the ocean in Israel, you see it. Unless you go inside, then you won't be able to report it to the rest of us. So, the point here is that we have another big fast coming up. The big fast that's coming up is in Tisha B'Av, it's in three weeks. But this fast is much, much bigger than this one. The one we had today is big, but Tisha B'Av is much bigger. Not only because we have to do more, we're not allowed to take a shower, it's for a longer period of time. You don't have the option, at least if you want to remain a righteous Jew, you don't have the option of sleeping all day. You have to go to shul, you have to pray. You have to do tshuva, but you have to get to a point of crying. Someone who doesn't cry in Tisha B'Av kind of missed the point. Why cry in Tisha B'Av? You cry because you don't have the Bet HaMikdash. Now for most Jews, myself included, most of my life that meant absolutely nothing to me. Most people are not going to tell you that. But it's real. For most people in the world, myself included, most of my life, Baruch Hashem, recently it's changed. But for most of my life, when people tell me, yeah, we don't have the Bet HaMikdash, Okay, so build a new one. We don't have it. Shem, give us a new one. Whatever. Look, it's 2,000 years ago. Leave me alone. What's it to me? That there's no building. Okay, so if Hashem wants to stop the building, He'll give us a building. If Hashem really cared about this building, thinking it's just a building, then you just build a building. And if not, He'll hire somebody. What's, the, what, what's it to me that we don't have this Bet HaMikdash? Now, most people are not going to tell you this. And the reason why is because they still want to show face and go to synagogue. If you tell people, listen, I don't really care that the Bet HaMikdash is destroyed. I tell you, listen, do me a favor, find a new shul. Find a new community, maybe even find a new religion. Don't talk to us anymore. It's like if you tell people, you know, the Holocaust, people ask, where was God during the Holocaust? The real answer is, he was there. He did it. That's the answer. He was pressing the buttons. He did it. Nothing happens in the world without Hashem doing it. Nothing. A leaf has to ask God for permission if it wants to fall off the tree. A leaf. Every tree has tens of thousands of leaves. A leaf wants to fall off the tree. says, I'm weak. I want to fall. Hashem says, not yet. Wait another week. A week later, can I fall? No, no, you know what? Wait another week. A leaf has to ask for permission if he's going to fall off a tree. Hashem cares about the leaf. The prophet Job said, Hashem, maybe you made a mistake. Maybe instead of Eyov, it's Oyev. Maybe you mistook my name. Instead of seeing that I'm Eyov, your prophet that loves you, you thought of me as an enemy, but I'm not an enemy. I love you. Hashem responds to me. He says, I know the name of every single hair on your head. Which means that every hair on our head, Hashem gives you the name. The hair. Now, I saw in a book recently, in our research for about wigs and everything that's misunderstood in the Jewish world today, scientists have estimated that the average head has between 90,000 to 150,000 hairs. Average head. So that means that on your head right now, there's approximately 125,000 names that Hashem knows. 
before each one of those hairs decides to fall, turn gray, turn different color, anything, has to ask permission. Hashem, can I turn gray? No, 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 yeah, he's too young. We clear, yeah, you know what? He made a sin last week. Turn gray, make him upset. Yes, the hair has to ask for permission if it wants to turn gray. So what, you think the Holocaust just happened? But if we tell this to a lot of people that are very sensitive about the Holocaust, like, oh, that's mean. These were holy people. Who's saying they weren't? They were holy people. I love them as much as you do. But to say that anything else other than Hashem caused it is kfira. It's 100% heresy. Because you're saying that there's a power beyond God. So now, this very same God decided that Tisha B'Av is going to be a day that unfortunately is going to be a day we're going to suffer. The negative things that happened in the Holocaust, the negative things that happened in the Bet HaMikdash, which by the way, the Bet HaMikdash was drastically worse than the Holocaust as far as quantity and deaths and disaster, but nonetheless, this is the recent disaster we have recorded that most people connect to, which is obvious why, because maybe they still know somebody that survived it or perhaps died in it. No questions asked. But if you tell people, listen, I don't feel bad that the Bet was destroyed. Like really, inside I don't feel bad. They're going to tell you, hold on, they're going to tell you, listen, there's something wrong with you, you should change Keilah. So now the response is, that on, on Tisha B'Av, when you show up, you show up to the Biknesset, and you're sitting on the floor like everybody else. What's everybody doing? What's everybody doing on Tisha B'Av? They're sitting on the floor. They're looking at the book. But in reality, what's everybody doing? They're always looking at the three guys that are crying. Say, why is he crying? Why is he crying? What's his house? Why he lived there? Why his uncle owned it, built it? What happened? Why is he crying? Everyone is asking why there's three guys. There's 500 people in the shul. There's three guys crying. Why is he crying? I know myself. I used to ask the same question. Why is he crying on Tisha B'Av? Why? Because I didn't feel bad about Bet HaMikdash. I didn't feel bad. I didn't connect to it. Now why didn't I connect to it? For the very same reason of those 500 other people that are looking at the guy crying. They didn't know what happened there. They didn't know what the significance of the Bet HaMikdash was. So, today, we have an opportunity to start learning what actually happened in this Bet HaMikdash. Why do we need to yearn for it? Why do we need to cry for it? What actually happened in this Bet HaMikdash that we should mourn it not existing? If somebody lost their house to Chasva Shalom, something a fire or a flood, all of these disasters that happen on a daily basis in the world, people lose their houses all the time. But once the insurance check comes in, nobody feels bad anymore. Everybody starts getting excited. Why? Because they're building a nicer house for more, for, for more money even. And still have change. Because everyone's overinsured. You have a $500,000 house, insurance for a million. So now you're buying a house, extension, maybe a car too. So as soon as the check comes in, everybody's excited, plus the insurance company pays for the hotel. So no one's crying anymore as soon as the check comes in. Everyone's crying until the check comes in. But here we don't have a check, and we're still expected to cry. Why are we crying? 
Because once we understood the significance of the Beit Mikdash, you'd actually cry every day. A little bit every day. A little bit every single day of why we don't have the Beit Mikdash. So first and foremost, the obvious is that when the Beit Mikdash existed, we're able to see miracles in the open 24 hours a day. There was not a minute that existed where there wasn't a miracle. But I don't mean a miracle like, it's like, oh yeah, it's a miracle, you just missed an accident. Like miracle, you would see wonders. You'd see Hashem at work. Things that are beyond nature. So there was no question of emunah. There's no question of whether God existed or not. So the natural question would be, so how could it be that Menashe and many like him worshipped idols? Menashe was a Jew. His father was a tzaddik to such an extent that Hashem said, if I decide to bring Mashiach, he would be it. Menashe's father was supposed to be Mashiach. But Menashe was an idol worshiper until he did tshuva. How? If you see miracles, two reasons. Number one, we're not going to get too deep into it, but number one reason is because in that generation, that was the Yetzirah of the generation. In our generation right now, the big Yetzirah is money and sex. Those are the two big, big Yetzirah that people can't control. People are literally willing to die for both of them. In that generation, the big thing that people are willing to die for is idol worship. The second thing is, is that idols weren't the same idols like you have today. Today, idol is Christianity, which is some idiot that died 2,000 years ago, and they claim that he's something or somebody. That's one form of idol. Another form of idol is the stuff that you buy in Chinatown. You buy it for 15 bucks, and you take it home, you start praying to it. Another form of idol is saying that the cow, because she's pregnant nine months, that means she's holy. So the Hindus made her an idol, Miskena, the, 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 the cow. She doesn't know that she's surrounded by idiots. But they pray to cows. Permit. Pimesh, the tzaddik, he showed me pictures. He says that many houses have this thing that they buy in the store, in a regular supermarket. And he showed me this bottle. And I don't, I don't read Indian. So what is this bottle? It's, it's urine. They buy in the supermarket, regular supermarket, they buy cow urine. Some people drink it every day. Some people just wash their house with it. Why? Because it came from a cow. But this is in a supermarket. It's not like in some like Baba's house. It's in a supermarket. Regular supermarket. You have cookies, you have urine. You have cookies, you have uh, know, crackers, you have, I don't know, knick, you have urine. And people buy it. They take, go to the same shelf, has all of them. They take them and wash the house. I'm going to drink and take a sip of Gatorade. Permit? Crazy. You can't make this stuff up. I know it sounds insane, but this is what's happening. So there's another form of idol. There are thousands and thousands of forms of idol, but unfortunately the biggest idol of all is money. People worship money. When it says God in God we trust on a dollar bill, unfortunately most people translate it as the dollar is the God that they're talking about. That's why they work overtime. That's why they're willing to get divorced over money, not talk to their brothers over money. We must kill each other over money. So this is an idolatry that we have now. In the old days, we had different type of idolatry where they actually prayed to statues. But the statues were not like the statues of today. The statues of days past were statues that actually had power. So if you pray for, uh, I don't know, you pray to the statue to give you uh, money, you would give you money. 
You pray for him to give you health, he'll give you health. Hashem actually instilled power in these idols, according to the Midrash, because that was the test. Because even though you see me performing miracles in a Beit HaMikdash, maybe there's a shortcut. I'm giving you a shortcut, maybe you have a shortcut. You can take the shortcut, you're going to come back to me. So to us it seems silly, because we don't have the same Yetzirah, but our Yetzirah is worse though, by the way. Because our Yetzirah is evolved. It's idol worship, but we don't know if it is. Most people are idol worshipping, but they don't know they're idol worshipping. At least back then they knew. So our Yetzirah is worse. So now, the Bet HaMikdash was an opportunity that after we realized that we messed up, that was the Tshuva station. You didn't have to go to lectures. Even with free pizza, nothing. All you had to do was go to Bet HaMikdash, bring Koban, say I'm sorry, start crying, finished. Finished. You must finished. You go back home, you're back to being Tadiq. Why? What the Bet HaMikdash? This is why in the Torah it says, Chazal asks, how come Hashem put, made Am Yisrael put signs all over the place to let people know where the cities were. There were cities that they actually had where they would put um, people that were murderers. People that were murderers by accident. They murdered somebody. Either they got into a fight, but it got too far, or perhaps by accident the guy hit him with a hammer, not on purpose. But according to the law, the family was allowed to take revenge. They said, listen, if you want your life, you should go to one of these cities. And he told the Kohanim, he told all of the leaders, that your job is to make sure the signs, so when these people are running away from the city, they know exactly where to go. They're not going to go ask anybody, where are these cities? Why? Because if he's going to knock on the door, he's like, hello, hello, do you know where the city is, where, where I can hide? He's like, hey, he's a murderer. The other one's, yeah, he's a murderer. Look, he's the guy on TV. He's embarrassed the guy. He doesn't, it's embarrassment. Why? He says, make sure you put a lot of signs everywhere where they know exactly where to go. They don't have to ask any directions. They don't even need Google Maps. But for the Bet HaMikdash, don't put any signs. Nothing. No signs. So Chazal asks, okay, I understand you when I embarrass them. I understand. So that's why you put signs. But why not put signs? At least tell people where to go. Go do tshuva. Go to Bet HaMikdash. Go do tshuva. Put some signs. Remind people. He goes, no, no. It's better once one guy wants to do tshuva, he wants to go to Bet HaMikdash. He doesn't know where to go. He asks his neighbor. Do you know where the Bet HaMikdash is? And the kid, the little kid's going to hear, Abba, they're going to Bet HaMikdash. Can we go too? It's like, okay, let's go. They're going to start going. Like, oh, you know what? I actually don't know where it is. Let's ask the next guy. And the next guy. And the next guy. The whole way, they're asking people where to go. What happens? They end up recruiting 150,000 people to go to Bet HaMikdash. That's what no signs. So, this Bet HaMikdash was an opportunity for us to do tshuva. By the time we get to Tisha B'Av, we have to become familiar enough with it and what happened during that time where we're not just fasting because we're not eating. We're fasting because we're the guy that's crying. We're finally connected to Hashem, we understand what we're really missing. So today is year number 50 in this series. 
And we're going to learn a little bit more about what is this special love that Hashem gave us throughout all of history and even more so in this Bet HaMikdash. Now, in Parashat Pinchas, the beginning of the parasha, we see something very unusual. It's a continuation of last week's story, Parashat Balak. In last week's parasha, we saw that after Balak hired Bil'am, and he told him, listen, go curse these people. I'll pay you whatever money you want. Name your price, I'll pay it. Bil'am tried cursing Am Yisrael with his prophecy, but Hashem turned his curses into blessings. So it didn't work. So he didn't want to give up so easily. There's a lot of money on the line. He said, listen, obviously God is not going to let me curse his own people. But there is a way that you can do it and you don't even need me. Their God, it says in the Gemara, the God of Israel hates immodesty. He hates when there's immodesty. He hates when they go against them, specifically when they make sex crimes. According to his law, there's laws of how you're allowed to be intimate, who you're allowed to be intimate with, how you dress, how you don't dress, and so on. And God is very, very strict with this law. So strict that even before he gave them the Torah, he gave Avraham Avinu a law. He says, you have a servant. Your servant's name is Eliezer. Eliezer was so holy that he's one of ten people in all of history that went to Gan Eden alive. We only hope to get there dead. He got there alive. But he says, even though he's so holy, you're not allowed to have his daughters marry your son. Why? Because he's from Canaan. He's from a different nation. Not allowed to intermarry in Judaism. Christian person could be very, very nice. Still not allowed to marry a Jew. Arab person could be wonderful. Still not allowed to marry a Jew. A Noahide could be holy. Job was a Noahide. Job was a Noahide, the prophet in the Torah. Not allowed to marry a Jew. Why? It's the law. So Bilam knew this. He says their God is very strict about immodesty. He's very strict about immodesty. He's very strict about all of these things. All you have to do is send all your young girls with miniskirts and tank tops to the Jewish camp. One guy makes a sin, they're all going to lose. What did Balak do? What does he have to lose? Who did he, what did he do? He sent not only all the girls, he included his own daughter to give the motivation. He goes, look, I'm the king. I'm, I'm so confident about this plan, I'm sending my own daughter to go be with the Jews. So what does everybody do? They follow the princess. So they went with an intention to make the Jews sin. Unfortunately, the Jews sinned. And for the first time in history, Hashem started punishing Am Yisrael without a warning. There's no stop sinning. There's no cut it out. There's no Moses go talk to them. Immediately a plague hit the people. And at the end of Parashat Balak... It says that the people started dying and within moments 24,000 people died. How did the death stop? When Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Cohen, Pinchas the son of Elazar, the grandson of Aaron Cohen, Moses' brother, he saw that the people were sinning. 
he saw that there's a serious problem, but it's they're all being motivated by one guy. Who is this one guy? The leader of the tribe of Shimon. The leader of the tribe of Shimon is actually motivating everybody else to do it. Why? Because he took Balak's daughter. He said, look, Moses, his wife, wasn't originally Jewish. Tzipora wasn't, really Jew- wasn't originally Jewish. She converted. I'll convert her later. I'll con- let me check it out for now. I'll convert her later. So Zimri, the leader of the Shimon tribe, went and was intimate with her. And from that moment on, the plague started and people started dying. And then the Sefer says, the, the book says, that uh, Pinchas saw that this was happening, and according to Allah, if you see a Jew and a non-Jew in the middle of intimacy, you're allowed to kill them, to stop the Chilul Hashem. And that's what he did. Obviously, we, this is not put into practice anymore. We're not allowed to kill anybody anymore. We're not the Sanhedrin. But the point is that in the days of the Sanhedrin, in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, this was the law. So now, this stopped the plague. But the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin says something else. It says an addition, an inside scoop. What actually happened during this time? In page 44 of Masechet Sanhedrin, 44a, it says, And Pinchas stood up and prayed, and the plague was stopped. So Chazal asked, what do you mean prayed? You have time to pray? People are dying. How do you have time to pray? Maybe you're going to fast also? You don't have time. People are dying. Mamash, within a matter of moments, 24,000 people are dying. And Hashem actually writes in the parasha that if it wasn't for Pinchas, I would have destroyed everyone. Hashem would have destroyed the entire people, all of them. There would be no Jews, nothing. The whole world would be destroyed. Why? They went against me with that. It's the one thing that Hashem can't stand is immodesty. One thing he can't stand is sex crimes. And I don't mean sex crimes like someone rapes on a woman. Even if it's illegal, they, she's willing, he's willing, everything's willing. If it's against the will of Hashem, Hashem hates it. So, Bilam knew this. Balak tried it. It worked. We have a problem. Now, Zimri doesn't care. He's doing what he's doing. Pinchas sees this as a serious problem. I'm going to go kill him. I have to do it. But here in the Gemara, it says he prayed first. You pray, you have time. 24,000 people just died. So the Gemara elaborates and says, not that he prayed and sat there and just started praying like a regular prayer like we are. He actually started complaining against Hashem. Now we know Pinchas as the most zealous person that ever lived. One of the mo- at least one of the most zealous people that ever lived. Eventually, Chazal says, Pinchas becomes Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi is one of the ten people that never died, went to, Hashem took him, made him into an angel, and is going to return him to announce to us that there's three days to go before Mashiach shows up. Meaning by the time Eliyahu Navi, we see him again, it's the end. No more time. No more time to do anything. He tells us, this is written in the Torah, Prophet Zechariah says before, Hashem says before, Mashiach comes, he's going to send Eliyahu Navi three days before, and the Yahweh Navi is going to tell us, purify yourself, 
as to the best of your ability. In three days, game's over. If someone hasn't already done serious chua by then, the three days are not going to help them, obviously. But the point here is that this zealous person, this holy of holies, such a holy person, that uh, this holy person went and put his life on the line to stop the plague. But the Gemara says, first, he complained against God. Now, the last thing you want to do is complain against God when he's upset. We see our wives upset, we're scared. Imagine God upset. The kid, my two-year-old, sometimes gets upset. I'm scared of her. I run away. She's scared. She's little, but she's scared when she's upset. Oh, come on. So, oh, come on. So now we see someone upset. We don't want to mess with him. Here, Pinchas, Ben Elazar, sees that God is upset. He just killed 24,000 people. He starts complaining against God. What does he say to God? He says, God, after he killed Zimri and Cosby, he killed both of them. The plague stopped. He goes to God, throws the bodies on the floor, says, for this, for these two, you killed all these people? For just these two sinners, you killed all these people, Hashem? So Chazal says, that's what made him great. The fact that he was willing to go kill a couple of people for the honor of Hashem, amazing. Amazing. What made him great what made Hashem make him a Kohen Gadol, where all the Kohanim Agdolim that ever were after him were his descendants. Why? Because he didn't fight just for Hashem's honor. He fought for his people's honor too. That's the secret of being zealous. It's very easy to say, everyone's a Rasha, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're this, and point a finger at everybody that you think is a Rasha because you're Mr. Tzaddik. But that's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants you to protect His honor, but also protect His children at the same time. He doesn't want you to go around and tell people, Yo Rasha, Yo Rasha, Yo Rasha. He wants you to bring them back. So that's what Pinchas did. He said, Hashem, I know your honor was on the line. I understand. But you killed so many people. Maybe you waited a few times. Something. So here in this Mishnah that we're up to, Rabbi Akiva gives us a little bit of an understanding of Hashem's honor, but also Hashem's love. What does it mean that Hashem loves you? Most people are 100% sure that Hashem loves them. Everyone thinks they have a special connection with God, like BFFs. Everyone's a best friend with God. They talk to Him. Listen to Him not so much, but they talk to Him. So Rabbi Akiva is telling you a few things here. We'll translate all of it in a moment. Okay. 
חיבה יתרה נודעת להם שניתן להם כלי חמדה שנאמר כי לקח טוב נתתי לכם תורתי אל תעזוב. Very very long משנה. Includes a couple of verses from the Torah for some sources. But we'll break it down and Bezat Hashem try to connect all of it. Rabbi Akiva, we learned about last week, the greatest of all sages, the number one Baal Tshuva of all time. He continues. He says, Beloved is man, for he was created in God's image. And it is indicative of greater love that it was made known to him that he was created in God's image. So first and foremost, Rabbi Akiva says, the fact that you're here already shows that God loves you. The fact that you're still here shows that God loves you because God created you in His image. Now, we have 13 principles of faith in Judaism. Every single Jew needs to know these 13 principles of faith. And anyone that wants to convert and they show up to the Bedin, they can ask you, do you know the 13 principles of faith? They say yes, they can ask you what they are. If you don't know them, you can't pass. Like if someone shows up to the 13, to the Bedin, and they tell him, okay, what's the 13 principles of faith? And they say, oh, yeah, uh, J.C. Penny was here 2,000 years ago. And say, okay, thank you very much for coming. Go try another religion. It's not part of our uh, religion, this J.C. Penny. Say, uh, okay, uh, what's number two? Let's say they give him a pass on the first one just to see how bad he really gets. Oh, Hashem will forgive everything. Okay, that's also not part of our 13 principles of faith. So there's 13 principles of faith that every Jew needs to have. These are 13 things that every Jew must believe in order to be considered Jewish. But believe, not just in, you know, in their heart, believe in actual action. One of them is that God does not have an image or a likeness of an image. He has no body. He has no head. He has no face. There's no image. You can't visualize what God looks like which is actually one of the biggest problems that Christianity has. They visualize God as a human being, a lowly human being, that everything that comes out of his body is smelly, they visualize God like this. This is as retarded as it could get. So, God is not human. Even Bilam, the wicked, knew this. He said in last week's parasha, what do you think, God's human, he changes his mind? He's not. This is actually one of our 13 principles of faith that not only is he not human, but he doesn't have any likeness to us. And God himself says to the prophet, Your thoughts are not like my thoughts. I don't think like you. Whatever you think about, it's very, very far away from my thoughts. The solution that you thought was a solution... Nine out of ten times is not going to be the solution. Why? Because Hashem's salvation is much greater than you can imagine. There was one time a mother, old woman, wanted to salvation for our son. Our son was broke. And a tax collector came to his house. and said, listen, if you don't show up with the money, by the end of the month, we're going to send you to jail. So the mother says, what am I going to do? What is my son? My son... Is a winemaker. That's it. That's all he does. He's going to make money selling wine. She says, son, sell your wine. He says, Ima, I don't have any more. 
I don't have any more wine. She goes, okay, so go buy more. He goes, I don't have any money either. She goes, so how are you going to pay the taxes? He goes, I don't know. So what does Ima do? She opens a little book. She starts praying to Hashem. But at some point, she decides to give Hashem suggestions. So the first suggestion is like, you know what, Hashem, I have an idea for you. Make my son into a lawyer. Lawyers make a lot of money. Even in those days, they were making money. So a week passes by. The son, still a winemaker. You didn't become a lawyer? No. Okay. Ima goes back to Hashem. She says, okay, Hashem, maybe a lawyer is a little too much. I understand. Fine. Make my son into a doctor. Doctors make good money. Even the beginning doctors, they make good money. A week passes by. Son, you're still a winemaker? Not a doctor yet. Third week, okay, Hashem, better idea, best idea ever. Make him into a successful businessman. The week passes by. He's still trying to figure out how he's going to pay the taxes. And he has no wine. And he's not a businessman. A day before the tax collector comes, somebody comes to his door and knocks on the door. Yes, hi, I heard you're a winemaker. I'm from out of town. I want one cup of your best wine. He's like, yes, I would love to give it to you, but I don't have. He goes, okay, listen, I know you Jews. I know, I know, you guys want more money. I understand, you guys are businessmen, all of you. Fine. What's your normal price? $50? No problem. I'll give you $150. He goes, no, 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 I don't have. I would give you for 50. 50 is already great. I don't have. He goes, okay, fine. 500. He says, listen, I don't have. I don't have. It's not, it's not 500. Baruch Hashem, it's great. Thank you. I don't have. He goes, fine. I'll give you 1,500 for one cup. What is he going to do? He says, okay, one second. One second. I'll be right back. He goes to the basement. He looks at his barrel. He says, I have nothing. What do I have? A bottom of the barrel. There's a few little fruits on the bottom. What does he have? Nothing. He goes, listen, what have? put some water on it. Put with the fruit. Mix it up a little bit. Give it to the guy. See what happens. What do I have to lose? 1500 bucks. He goes to the guy. He's scared to death because this guy looks chashuv. Who carries $1,500 these days? He gives him the cup and he's like closing his eyes just to see if maybe the guy's going to hit him. The guy drinks the wine and he gives him one of these slaps on the back. He's like, see, I knew you could make it. Why, why are you hiding this thing from me? Only 1500 You should have charged more. This is the best wine ever. Wow. The guy is celebrating like he just gave him the man from Shemaim that we got in the desert. He goes, listen, I'm a very, very important mayor in a different city and I'm having a party in three months. I want... 100 barrels of this wine exactly and I'll pay exactly the same price that I paid now. The kid, winemaker, is now a multimillionaire. He gave him half the money up front. So the ima, the mom, she looks at Hashem, she goes, you know what Hashem? I didn't think of that one. You got me on that one. I didn't think of that one. She thought she was helping Hashem. So sometimes we think we need to help Hashem. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. Whatever you think is salvation is going to come, it's not it. Why? If it's salvation from Hashem, you can't think of it. If you can think of it, it's not from Hashem. So now, we have Rabbi Akiva, 
telling us that Hashem loves you, just the fact that you're here, it's already good news. It's already good news. But even more so, the fact that you were created in His image makes you special. But since Hashem doesn't have an image, what does it mean? So Chazal gives a couple of explanations. One of them is that we have free choice. Now the free choice that we have is not free choice like we think. Most people think that you can just do whatever you want and that's free choice. That's not what we have. You can do whatever you want. No questions asked. But it's not exactly like that. Free choice that we think we have is that you can do whatever you want and there's no consequences. So for example, you go to work, you get paid. You don't go to work, you don't get paid. That's the free choice we think we have. The free choice we actually have is the free choice according to the Torah. And according to the Torah, that free choice means if we go to work, we get paid. If we don't go to work, they send people to our house to beat us up. There's reward and punishment. If we go to work, we work for Hashem, we get rewarded. We don't work for Hashem, we get punished. That's the free choice we have. But that's, in essence, the closest we can get to the image of God. The closest we can get to. Now he says even further, he says this, it's aside from the fact that he shows you his love by creating you, by you being here, by you not being destroyed for all the sins we've already made. He shows you even more love to you by making you know, letting you know that he created you in his image. Now the Gemara says that if you want to give somebody a present, according to Gemara Masechet Shabbat, you have to let him know in advance. To give somebody a present, you have to let him know in advance. Why? We learn it from God. When God wanted to give us the gift of Shabbat, He says, I have a big treasure in my treasure chest, and the name of it is Shabbat. Go tell the people that I'm about to give it to them. So we see that Hashem notified Moshe Rabbeinu to notify the people that He has a big present for them. So it's a very good thing to do if you want to give somebody a present. Let them know there's a present on the way. So here, Rabbi Akiva says the first thing that you have here is that Hashem is telling you that He loves you by you being here first place, in the first place, but even more so by letting you know where you stand. Now a lot of people have different psychological issues. Some people think that they're worthless. Some people think they're priceless. Some people don't want to leave the house because they think that everyone hates them and they're not good enough. And some people think that only roses come out of their body. They think that everything that they say is kadosh, everything they do is right, wrong, and them have nothing in common. It's a lot of people like this. Sometimes it has to do with money. Usually if you have a lot of money, it tends to make people think that their IQ is higher. But believe it or not, I met a lot of millionaires in my life. Many of them are stupid as far as like IQ is concerned, but very, very smart as far as life. Not all of them are uh, Steve Jobs IQ or Albert Einstein. Many people that are very, very wealthy, they don't have, they have standard IQ. Standard, normal, regular person. They don't have like a, some genius IQ. 
But for some reason or another, people that go from nothing to something feel like their IQ also went up. That's not true. It doesn't go up. It stays the same. So, Rabbi Akiva is saying, listen, the fact that Hashem created you already shows you good. Already shows you that He loves you. Already shows you that He cares about you. The fact that He's telling you where you stand shows you even more. Why? If you just came into the world and you didn't really know what, what to do. You're like one of these atheists. To be an atheist is the worst belief in the world. And the reason why is because you have no purpose. There's no point to life. If you are an atheist, dying or living is the same. Nothing changes. Now for all of those people, it's like, no, what do you mean? Why do I have to believe in God in order for my life to mean anything? Because in order for it to mean something, it has to outlive you. It has to outlast you. It has to be bigger than you. It has to be beyond this life. Now, how many of you have an iPhone? Or have ever had an iPhone? You've had an iPhone before. Now, the last time you checked your phone, which was probably five minutes before you walked in here, did you say, thanks, Steve Jobs? You didn't, right? Did you ever say, ah, Steve Jobs, thank you? No, nobody cares. He died. It's over. He's gone. By the way, he was an atheist. It's gone. Nobody cares. He was a business owner that had a bunch of smart people that had a few ideas. Here you go, you have an iPhone. The end. What you created as far as material is meaningless. Especially beyond your life. It's obsolete. You buy a car, five minutes after you leave the parking lot, it already dropped by 30%. Do you think the guy that put the car together thought about this? No, he said, listen, I'm doing it because I need to make money. Not because the car is the purpose of my life. So for all those people that think that their business, their money, their houses, their, their buildings, that's the purpose of their life, I'm sad to inform you that's a very, very sad achievement because it's not going to outlive you. No one cares. No one cares. As soon as they buy the house, they're not saying, oh, thank the guy that built the house. They don't even know the guy's name. The only reason why they, some people have the name on the building is because the only way to get the donation is if you put the name on the building. But no college student ever asks, oh, do you know uh, so-and-so was that's on his building? No one cares. No one says, oh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, Steve Jobs' anniversary. That's why it's on the building. Nobody celebrates Steve Jobs' anniversary or anybody that dies' anniversary. No one cares. They just want to go into the building, so they go to the course, they get past the class, so they get a degree, so they get a job, and maybe become Steve Jobs. They don't care that Steve Jobs found the building. So if material is your purpose, you're living a purposeless life. If your spouse is your purpose then that means that most people in the world don't have a purpose. Because there are many people that can't find, a can't find a spouse. Guys can't find girls, girls can't find guys. Somehow guys find guys and girls find girls, but girls finding each other, they can't. It's like everything is opposite. We have many people coming to us, asking us for help, finding a zivug, finding somebody for them. And we'd love to do anything we can to help. What's the problem? 
The guys that want to get married are usually very young. 20, 22, 25, good heads on their shoulders, either just did tshuva or a frum from birth, whatever, just guys that are serious about, let's, let's get started. I want to start a family. I, want to, I don't want to continue sinning. They know that every day, every day they live as a single person, they're closer and closer to sin, either wasting seed by themselves or having a girlfriend they're not to have. He says, listen, i got to get married. Hashem created a guy with certain inclinations. He can't control it forever. He can't. So they want to get married. Problem is that many of the women, they don't want to get married. When they want to get married? When they're 37, 38, 42, 45, 50. So that's the problem that I'm constantly having is that the girls are in their 30s and 40s. The guys are in their early 20s. You can't make a match. So once you finally get a match, it's like a metziah. It's like, wow, it's it's a miracle. But it's not a business that I want to be in. And the reason why is because it's even more difficult than this. I tried making a match. Finally, you found a, I found a couple. I finally found a couple. It was like, I mean, I, thousands of people contact me every day. So, for different reasons. Once in a while, it's for Zivug. So, finally, I found a couple. They're both located in California. Already a miracle of its own. They're both located within, like, you know, driving distance of each other. Miracle number two, Yamsuf. They're both around the same age. I said, this is the man coming from Shemaim. They look at each other's picture. They're attracted to each other. I said, this is this is Moshe Rabbeinu. Might as well be here. I'm thinking this is the greatest thing that ever happened. They talk on the phone. They get along. I start dancing. I, I tell my wife. I'm like, honey, we finally made a match. They go on a couple of dates. What happens? The girl, the girl calls me, starts complaining to me. What happened? Oh, I didn't know this and I didn't know this. I'm like, yeah, but he told you. Yeah, but I didn't know that way. I didn't know this. Nonsense stuff. I'm like, okay, well, if you don't want it, then it's fine. We'll find another match. You know, I'm already about to cry. I thought I had some miracles. They continue. And then she calls me back, maybe like a month and a half later. They're dating for a little while. month and a half later, she sends me an email that she's very upset with me. <laughs> it's free, by the way. I don't charge. It's free. All this is for free. Like I have extra time in my hands. All this is free. She sends me an email that she's very upset with me because her psychiatrist told her that I shouldn't have made her go out with this guy because he's just not a good match for her. Why? Only Hashem knows. He's not a good match for her, and she's upset with me that I went against her psychiatrist, which I didn't even know she had. Had I known, he probably wouldn't have made poor guy, wouldn't have put him together. Be scanned. So she's upset with me because I went against the psychiatrist. I didn't know they existed. And the psychiatrist know be- knows better. So why don't you ask the psychiatrist to make this evil? Why are you coming to me? So this is a business I don't want to be in. But if I have a match for you, I'll try. I just don't want to go into the business of doing it on a regular basis. It's just, it's, I have enough headaches in my life. One miracle at a time, guys. One miracle at a time. So Rabbi Akiva, we'll go back to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is telling us here. Rabbi Akiva is saying, the fact that you're a human being is already amazing. You're in the image of God is already amazing. It's a huge accomplishment. It shows that Hashem loves you. 
The fact that he told you, extraordinary. Why? Because if you were an atheist and you didn't know why you were here, you'd have mamash a purposeless life. There would be no purpose for you to be here. Someone that dies, if they're an atheist, no one should cry over him. Why? This is what he wanted. It's the same thing. He went back to the land. He became, I don't know, a tree. He became part of the wind. He became soil. It's the same thing. Nothing had, nothing. It was energy. He stayed energy. He didn't die. He stayed energy. You say he was energy before. He came from nothing. He went back to being nothing. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? He's he doesn't believe that God created him. He said nothing created him, so he went back to being nothing. What's the problem? He said the book is not real, right? So he's going to become a tree. We're going to print the book on him. Do him a favor. What's the problem? He has a purposeless life. Mama's purposeless life. There's no point to live. Anything he did, no one cares about. On the other hand, if someone is living for a God, he's saying, listen, this God told us that this life is just a corridor. It's just a station. It's just the first starting out job. I came here to pay my dues, work myself up the work ladder. You know, you start in the mailroom. Eventually you want to be CEO, but you can't start a CEO. So here, this is the mailroom. Little by little, you do tshuva, you start getting closer to Hashem, you feel like you got a better position. Little by little, you go up, 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 up. Eventually, before you go to the next world, you're supposed to be at your height, the best situation. So when someone dies, if they were righteous, the only crying that should be done is for us that are still here. That we're not going to live next to them because they're so righteous. We're missing out on their Torah. We're missing out on their wisdom. We're missing, we're missing out. But for them, we shouldn't cry. Why? They're in a much better place than all of us could ever imagine. So when someone is living for a God, when that God is, Israel, is the God of Israel... He's telling you this is just the first station. Eternity is the next one. What kind of eternity is up to you? So, the verse that uh, Rabbi Akiva uses as a proof for what he's saying is the verse that Hashem said to Noach. Hashem said in the Parashat Noach, when Hashem destroyed the world, after there were so many sinners, he says, listen, I don't want to destroy the world again. So I'm going to give you some rules to follow. I'm going to give you seven laws. That as long as the world follows these laws, you're going to be okay. Seven. If you don't follow these laws, there's no point for this world. The first six I give to Adam Rishon. I'm giving you number seven. That's why it's called the seven Noahide laws. The first of these laws is this. The verse that he uses here is in uh, because in the image of God, he made man. But what does the actual verse say? The whole verse says. The whole verse, in chapter 9, verse 6, the law is, if a man who spills the blood of a person within a person, his own blood will be spilled 
Because in the image of God, Hashem created man. So this is a very big tongue twister. Spill over blood, within blood, of blood. I mean, there's a lot of blood here. Shouldn't we just say if he killed somebody? It's at the end. If this law is the law for murder, then it should be the same thing as the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments says, don't murder. But here, it doesn't say that. Here it says, someone who spills the blood of a man, within a man, his own blood will be spilled. If it was purely murder, it should say, someone who spills blood, his own blood will be spilled. So, this verse actually is the source of why wasting seed is not allowed for anyone, Jews or Gentiles. Because this is exactly what it means. The blood of a man, we know, is just blood. But the blood of a man within a man is seed. The blood of a man, whoever spills the blood of a man within a man, his own blood will be spilled. So here we know that we're, it's not referring to murder, he's referring to someone that's wasting seed. Someone that's wasting seed, according to God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's considered 100% murder. Why is it considered murder? Because you're expected to live like a human being that is a, knows that he's in the image of God, not an animal that just procreates out of instinct. So this is exactly the verse that Rabbi Akiva chooses instead of any other verse. There's other verses in the Torah where Hashem says that He created us in His image. It's not the only one. He chooses this one. The reason why is, if you remember last week's uh, Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva, the, f- the first law that he said to st- keep you away from sin and stay connected to God, the first thing is, Stay away from mockery and, uh, and levity. Don't joke around too much. Don't be uh, overly uh, comfortable and flirtatious with people that you're not allowed to be with. Why? Because... It leads you to immorality. It leads you to promiscuity. It leads you to things that you're not allowed to do. So here, in this Mishnah, he's just continuing the same thought. He said, remember, why should you not be overly joking, overly modest, overly uh, flirtatious? Because you were created in the image of God. And if you don't, if you create in the image of God, obviously, you want to protect that image. Because if you don't, remember, there's a verse after you in the Torah. That, that verse says, yes, you were created in His image. But before that verse is completed, it tells you, why were you created in His image? Because it's a reminder not to waste seed. It's a reminder not to make sex crimes. So here, this is a very, very deep first part of the Mishnah. And Rabbi Akiva says, the fact that Hashem told you this is an indication of love. Why? Because if you didn't know this, and you lived your whole life, 50, 60, 70, 80, 120 years, not knowing this, then you could be, in your eyes, the most righteous person in the world, but still have no share of the world to come. Because one of the the three worst sins in Judaism are, first one is Chilul Shabbat, Second one is Chilul Hashem, and third one is Zerah Levatalah Mazid, wasting seed on purpose. So someone could 
Leitfilin, have a kosher wife, have a kosher husband, kids in yeshiva, give tzedakah every week, kosher business, everything's wonderful. Goes to synagogue, great. Once in a while, when his wife says she has a headache, he says, okay, I'm not going to wait for her. He can't control himself. That, my friend, he can lose his olam haba. As simple as that. A person can live his whole life living a lie, thinking it's the truth. So Rabbi Akiva says, the fact that Hashem gave you that text message to let you know you're created in His image, that's already in Parashat Bereshit. It's already in the beginning of the Torah. You don't even need to be a Talmud Chacham, know the entire Gemara, the Shasta, the whole Zohar, nothing. It's Bereshit. Just read the commentary of Bereshit, that's what it says. Just read it. So that's already an indication that He loves you. Next step. Beloved are the people of Israel, for they are described as children of the omnipresent. So even more so is that aside from being a human being, whether a righteous Gentile or a Jew, even more so there's love from Hashem if Hashem decided that you're going to be one of His chosen people. It's even more love for you than anyone else. An indication of this greater love was made known to them. When Hashem said in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, you are the children of Hashem, your God. So here Hashem is telling us, here's children. Not only, not like all of, the, all of mankind, Obviously, all, all of mankind is his creation. But Am Yisrael is the only one that he calls his children. So first and foremost, Rabbi Akiva says, you're even luckier. You're in this room. You're a natural-born Jew. You're a convert, converted Jew. And you know it. That already shows God loves you. Why? Because now, not only... Do you know that you have a purpose in the world, but you're actually one of the few, one of the few that has the opportunity to execute their purpose. You're one of the few. Many people have a tough time with conversion. Unfortunately, in the world today, there's a lot of politics in conversion. In the old days, according to the Shulchan Aruch, conversion shouldn't be so difficult. If you look at the ter- third halacha in Shulchan Aruch, you see about uh, conversion, you'd see that in the old days, if somebody came to the rabbis, a guy came to the rabbi and says, I want to convert. I want to be a Jew. What would they say? they say, listen, we're a persecuted nation. You know they just killed a bunch of us. You know they're planning on killing a bunch of us. So it's not going to stop anytime soon. No problem. That's, that's, I want to be that. Because you know, last week you were... Driving on Shabbat. Next week you drive on Shabbat. No good. You get death penalty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to do that. Says, Last week you ate chazil. You ate uh, pig. Last week you ate cheeseburger from McDonald's for $9.99. Or 99 cents, however much it is. Next week you do it. It's death penalty. Yeah, exactly. I want to convert. Exactly. They give him brit milah. 
same day they gave him Milah, and the only machloket, the only uh, difference of opinion, is whether he dips in the mikveh on that day and completes his conversion that very day, without learning Hebrew, without learning all the halachot, without learning everything, that day, whether he dips in the mikveh that day, or they wait for the Brit Milah to heal, and he comes back a month later. And the very next thing it says in the Shulchan Aruch, this is not some law I made up, Shulchan Aruch, you go look at Shulchan Aruch, third halacha, Velo makpidim alav alachot gdolot. And they don't put any extra stringencies on him and teach him too much of alachot right away. Little by little, teach him netilat yadayim, teach him a little bit about Shabbat, a little bit of kosher. Don't tell him, listen, you're not allowed this, you're not allowed that. Easy. But they convert him on the spot. That's how conversion used to be. Used to be. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of erevrav over the generations. A lot of fake converts. People converting for money, people converting for wrong reason. So the rabbis had to make takanot. They had to change things, make it a little more difficult. And uh, we had to go through a process. The problem is that in today's age, we're on the opposite extreme. We went from one extreme to the other. It was too easy, now it's too hard. And a lot of people have a hard time dealing with this. They have a hard time dealing with the politics. They have a hard time dealing with the fact that it costs money. Like, why would it cost money to be any, any type of religion? When people ask me, listen, can we convert? I say, absolutely. Whenever you're ready, I'm ready. Conversion does not take a certain amount of time. There's some rabbis, many rabbis, unfortunately, when they sponsor people to conversion, they tell them, okay, so how long do you think it's going to take? They already have in the top of their head how long it's going to take. How do you know? Oh, it's going to take you two years. It's going to take you four years. It's going to take you six years. Well, how do you know it's going to take six years? What, Allah says wait six years? Allah says wait two years? No, Allah says convert him on the spot. So why does it take two years, six years, ten years? I have one guy finish conversion after ten years. He's skin. Why? Because they need to be sure that you're sure. The truth is that many converts don't really know what they're doing. They just want to be Jew because it looks cool. So we have to be careful. But there are some, there are some, Baruch Hashem in our generation, there are many, that are very, very genuine about conversion, and they're very dedicated, they're much more dedicated than even natural born Jews, to such an extent they're willing to make sacrifices that are beyond our understanding. So they're already ready to make all the changes, life changes right away. Kosher, Shabbat, family, Whatever it is, no problem. As far as learning the laws, anyone that learns for a few months, if they're smart, probably a month. Not so smart, three, four months. Learns it, you already know enough to convert. Learn the halachot of Shabbat, learn the halachot of how to, how to eat, blessings, what prayer to say in the morning, how to be a Jew, day-to-day Jew. Anyone that learns the basics can easily learn the basics and become a Jew. If they're able to make the life changes, learn the basics, that's all you need. If that takes two months, let it take two months. If that takes two years, let it take two years. If that takes 50 years, let it take 50 years. I told somebody last week or two weeks ago, I had two students come to me at the same time. One student was, mamash, unbelievable within less than a year she knew more about, about Judaism than most Jews in the world, including Tamidim Chachamim, including people that learned Torah all day. Genius. 
but dedicated like you wouldn't believe. On the other hand, there was a guy that came at the same time. She finished her conversion in a very short period of time, less than a year. Him, on the other hand, I told him, in 50 years from now, maybe he'll finish. In 50 years, maybe he'll finish. Maybe. Why? Takes him six months, seven months to finish one tiny little book. He doesn't show up to 75% of the lectures. He's in touch maybe once in a while. He's not serious. But he has a lot of complaints, though. A lot of complaints. It's everybody else's fault except his. So, as far as conversion, it's not supposed to be a certain amount of time. It's up to you. The timing is up to you. If you're serious, you're committed. But other gym, it's going to happen quickly. If you're not serious, it'll never happen. So the halakha is supposed to be that you're supposed to be able to convert right away. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So a lot of people are very, very upset. There's a lot of angry converts in the world today. Even people that already succeeded in converting, they're just angry. They're angry at the system. They're angry that they're not accepted in the uh, community right away. They're angry. They're just angry. They're angry because they're this and they're that, or the people are saying things. And Listen, if you're planning on convert, or you already converted, and you're watching this, you have to understand one thing. Am Yisrael suffered for over 3,300 years to be Am Yisrael. To be Am Yisrael right now, you guys that are sitting in front of me, for you to be here, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents, all of your ancestors suffered non-stop. Doesn't matter if they were rich or poor. Every single one of them suffered for the last 3,000 years. Why? So you can be here listening to Ashiul Torah because you're a Jew. For 3,000 years we were slaves. We went through pogroms. We went through inquisitions. We were murdered. We were Every horrible thing that ever happened to mankind happened to Am Yisrael. For what? So you could be Jewish. They didn't give up their soul and say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Christianity or I believe in Islam or I believe in some other stupidity. They didn't say that. Why? So you could be a Jew today. 3,000 years they're doing it. So you could be here today say, I'm a Jew. Only reason. They didn't do it for them. They're finished. They're in Allahabad. They have Gan Eden. Why did Hashem let it all continue, go over and over and over again? So today, you could say, I'm a Jew. Why? Because he suffered for 3,000 years. So you can't ruin it now. You have a big responsibility in your hands. This is why you have to send your kids to yeshiva. So it doesn't end with you. 3,000 years been going, suffering, inquisitions, pogroms, holocaust, so you don't ruin it now and don't send the kid to yeshiva. Because you want to save 500 bucks a month, so you could spend it on a navigation system. Don't ruin it. So we've been suffering for 3,000 years. Now the convert, he just found out Six months ago, he wants to be a Jew. Don't expect such an easy ride. We've been suffering for 3,000 years. At least you could take it. maybe a couple of years. 3,000 years we've been suffering. Don't expect to just to get a free coast. I want in right away. It's going to be a little bit. A little bit of dues to be paid. That's number one. Second thing is, is that if you really know what it means to be a Jew, it's not suffering expected. The hardship is expected. It's part of being a Jew. The Bedin, the bed, this Bedin, that Bedin, doesn't make a difference. You're not being a Jew. You're not trying to become a Jew 
because there's a system. You're not trying to remain a Jew because there's a system or there isn't one. You're being a Jew because that's what you're supposed to be. That's what you believe in. So, a few days ago, there was a huge report that came from Israel, from the Bedin of Israel, the Rabbanut of Israel, who said that there's a list of 160 rabbis who perform conversions where their conversions are not accepted in Israel. So this is a very, very big balagan. This is a very, very big nightmare in the conversion world because anyone that converted to these people now has to have their conversion in question. Now, some people are trying to beat the system. and say, listen, who cares? Why do you have to go to one of the approved rabbis, the recognized rabbis? The reason why is because even though the halacha is, any three Jews can convert you. Any three kosher Jews, according to halacha, can convert you. That's the halacha. Three kosher Jews, they don't have to be rabbis. They don't have to be a bedin. But it's a stupid thing to do. Why? Because even though you live, let's say, in Montana, or you live in, I don't know, North Dakota, by yourself, you and your six kids and your wife, it's not going to be that way forever. Eventually, the six kids are going to grow up. They want to get married. They want to move. They want to leave town. They want to get married to a Jewish woman. The Jewish woman's parents are going to say, are you Jewish? They're going to say, yes. Okay, prove it to me. Oh, yeah, I have a certificate. He's like, who's this rabbi? Oh, I don't know. We don't know this. He's not on a recognized list. You're not considered Jewish. Your kid's going to hate you forever. Because even though Allah, you're right. You're right. According to Allah, you need conversion. But according to reality that we live in, it's not conversion. So sometimes, the dues that you pay are worth it. So now that there's 160 different rabbis, many of them are conservative and reformed, but there are many orthodox rabbis that perform conversions that are not accepted. Anyone that goes through, that's going through conversion has to make sure that their rabbi is on that list. And people come to me and say, listen, it costs money. Why should we pay to be a Jew? I don't have to pay if I was a Christian. I don't have to pay if I was a Muslim. They welcome me. Sometimes they pay me. I said, listen, to pay to be one of the chosen, if you're even questioning it, then you don't know what it means. You should reconsider. Now, the best part about it is that they're not complaining about paying me because I do it for free. What are they complaining about? Paying the, some bedin or some, rab, some other rabbi. It's necessary. It's not my problem. What do you want me to do? You want me to pay for it also? So, people need to understand. If money is your only barrier to conversion, you should thank Hashem. Get the money however you need to get it. Wait a little bit. Wait six months. Save. Do whatever you got to do. Get it. If that's the only barrier between you and becoming part of the chosen people, it's the greatest gift in history. Why? You're going to be part of the chosen people. If you don't know what that means, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. You should stay a goy. You should stay. No hide. Righteous no hide. Why be a Jew? If you don't know what it means to be part of the chosen, and you think it's too expensive, or it's too difficult, or it's too, stay the same as you are. But if you think that they're going to all welcome you on a red carpet, hey, is it your few been waiting for you? You're dreaming. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not, it's not being Jew. If it's easy, it's not Judaism. So, first and foremost, Hashem is telling you the fact that you're a Jew, the fact that you're part of the chosen people, you consider the children of Israel already shows I love you above and beyond the norm. The forgiveness to you is higher. 
But the consequences for your sins are also higher. The mercy I have for you is higher. But your responsibility is higher too. The fact that I let you know shows you how much I love you. Why? If a, if a king has a son, and the son says, Abba, you have an interesting job, but I don't really want to be king. I want to just be like the rest of the guys. So I'm going to go clubbing. Smoke some hashish. Do a few... Uh, Roller coasters in the middle of the night in Las Vegas. You know, do what I gotta do. Have fun with the guys. Do you think that the king will give the son even an option to be able to do such a thing? If he does, he's not a king. Why? He says, listen, you're my only son. You have to be king next. The kingdom is not yours to choose. A king is not allowed to just let people disrespect him. Because being a king is beyond you. But that's where being a, being a father comes in. So the Gemara says, if someone disrespects a king, he's not allowed to forgive them. Not allowed. Someone disrespected David Melech, he's not allowed to forgive him. Someone disrespected Shlomo Melech, not allowed to forgive him. Not allowed. Why? It's not, it's not for him... It's not his kinghood. Hashem chose him to be king. But that's where Hashem says, that's where you being my child comes in. Because if someone disrespects his father, the father is allowed to forgive. So the fact that you're a Jew means that tshuva is available to you. You're allowed and able to do tshuva. Because you're a Jew. Also, a non-Jew is able to do tshuva, but the tshuva of a Jew... It can bring you to much higher levels. To such an extent that the Gemara says that the level of where a Baal Tshuva stands is even higher than someone that's been righteous their whole life. Why? Because someone that's been righteous their whole life possibly didn't have the same Yetzara. He didn't put himself around the same obstacles. So his Yetzara is small. On the other hand, someone that's a Baal Tshuva, he saw the half-naked women, he saw the money, he saw this, he saw the Yetzara in the world, and he still chose to go with God. So Hashem says, the fact that you're my son makes you special. But, there's always a big but. Since there's a lot expected from you, I let you know. Because I love you, I let you know. Now a lot of people think that uh, rebuking, we talked about it last week, We'll let the train finish. A lot of people think that rebuking someone shows like you hate them. If you rebuke them, you hate them. It's a sign of hate. This couldn't be further from the truth. Anybody have kids? Your kid ever do anything wrong with their perfect angels? They do something wrong once in a while, right? Little, once in a while. Now when they grow up, let's say. Let's say one of them takes one of the cups on the table and smashes it across the wall. 
not happy about it, right? What are you going to tell him? Don't do it. Why are you going to tell him don't do it? Because you want, you want him to stop doing it so he does the right thing because it's the wrong thing to do. That's called rebuke. You're correcting him so he does the right thing. So he stops doing the wrong thing. Why are you doing it? Because you love him. So when someone tells you, listen, no, no, don't tell your son not to do that. Don't tell your son to stop breaking the house. If you listen to that person, what are you doing? According to some of the big sages, you're growing up a little Hitler. Why? Because he's going to do whatever he wants. First he throws with the glass. Then it's the TV. Then it's the house itself. Then it's you. Then it's the neighbors. Before you know it, it's a little Hitler. It's a little Holocaust in the neighborhood. Why? Because no one ever wants to rebuke the kid. So, Hashem says, when I rebuke you, it's not I rebuke you because I hate you. I rebuke you because I love you. I want you to go in the right direction. And it hurts me, it pains me, that you're going in the wrong direction. Because I know that the only reason why you're going in the wrong direction is because you don't realize how good and how beneficial the right direction is. So, sometimes rebuke hurts. Being told what to do between all of us, no one likes to be told what to do. Anybody like when their wife tell me, hey, honey, take out the garbage? You take out the garbage. That's what you want to tell her really. You say, okay, take it out. Sure, sure, take it. Why? Because you want to stay married. You say, yeah, sure, honey. I was, up, I was just on the way there. Take the garbage. She's like, ah, garbage again. You're thinking in your mind, the garbage again. Again, the, why can't she take the garbage? But in reality, what do you say? Yeah, yeah, I was on the way. I was on the way to the garbage right now. I was thinking, this. we're the same. We're the same, honey. We're the same. We're the same, honey. We're the same. We're same. In the mind, in your mind, what are you thinking? Garbage again. She can't have somebody else take the garbage. The kids can't take the garbage. These lazy little kids, they're only three. But you're thinking in your mind, the garbage, but you want to stay married. But you don't like that. Why, why don't you like it? It's not the garbage. You really care about the garbage? If you knew that the garbage was full of diamonds, you'd care that it's a heavy garbage? No. Why do you care? You don't like that she told you what to do. You don't like that she told you what to do. You don't like it. The customer says, no, this wasn't done the right way. Fix it. Fix it. What do you say to them? Yeah, of course, ma'am. No problem, no problem. In your mind, like, why did they come to me? Why don't they complain to their father that brought them? You're cursing them like the day they were born. Why? They told you what to do. But if it was a brand new customer, and they told you, listen, I want it a certain way. What are you going to tell them? Of course, absolutely. Why? Because it's a brand new order. They're not telling you what to do. They're ordering something. They're asking for something. You're asking them for money. But the customer that's returning, the customer service is always the hard part. Because you feel like you're being rebuked. You feel like they're complaining to you. Why is she telling me what to do? She's going to teach me how to cook. I've been a chef for 20 years. I was cooking when they were still in diapers. No one wants to be rebuked. No one wants to be told what to do. So rebuke hurts. No one likes to hear it. No one. Myself included. But Hashem says, you have to hear it. You have to hear it. He writes in Proverbs something that's very, very important for every Jew to understand. In Proverbs 3, verse 11, it says, The rebuke of God, my son, don't hate it. Why? It's for you. 
It's for your own benefit. I'm not rebuking you because I have fun rebuking you. I'm rebuking you because I'm trying to get you in the right direction. But sometimes to get you in the right direction hurts. It hurts. Why? If, let's say, for example, your son, we're back to your son. I mean, he's probably two months old. But let's say your son, two years old. Okay, he's not causing any damage. It may, may never cause any damage. But let's say somebody's son takes plastic cup, plastic cup with a little orange juice in it, and throws it across the room. It's not fun, right? What are you going to do? Beat him up? Oh, you tell him, listen, honey, don't do it. It's not good. You're still civilized. Why? It's, at the end of it all, it's a little cup. It's plastic. It has a tiny little bit of orange juice. Big deal. Not the end of the world. Now, what if this little honey, this little cute little pumpkin pie, decided that he thinks the greatest idea for him right now is to take the fork that Abba gave him to eat with, the, the metal fork that he was going to eat with, take it and put it right into the electric socket. Shem It's the greatest idea. He goes, he's running. He's running. And you know he's going there. He's going to the electric socket. He's celebrating. I'm going to the electric socket. I'm going to see what happens. Are you staying civilized? Are you staying calm? Are you staying seated and saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry, he'll figure it out on his own. I want to show him that I love him. Those kids die, unfortunately. When When the parents are still sitting down and the kid is running to the socket to get electrocuted and the parent doesn't do anything, the kid dies. And the parent, in reality, hates him. And he wants him to die. Because any parent that loves their child is going to run out of their chair and do whatever they can to stop the child, even if it means tackling him down. And tell him, stop, honey, please, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to kill yourself. And that's what Hashem says. Hashem says to the prophet Isaiah, tell the people they're in trouble. In chapter 1, verse 4, Isaiah says to the people, whoa, they are a sinful nation. A people weighed down by iniquity, evil offspring, destructive children. They have forsaken Hashem. They have angered the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their back to Him. What have you been smitten since you continue to act perversely? And he continues for the next five verses to rebuke them where if he were here today, they would throw him out of the synagogue. In different places in the, in the book, it talks about how Hashem says, my people are stupid. Hashem actually calls His people stupid. Hashem. Says they're my children, but they're stupid. They only know how to sin. This rebuke is from God, not from me. God is talking to the prophet. Because prophet, prophet, go tell the people I think they're stupid. Doesn't sound like such a nice God. Sounds kind of mean. Prophet, prophet, go tell them I think they're big sinners. They're shine. Wicked. 
doesn't sound so nice. It sounds mean. But he always says, but they're still my children. They're still my children and tshuva is still available to them. I call them my children because I love them. But if I stay sitting down, sitting down and I do nothing, they're all going to go to the electric socket and die. So I have to call them stupid. I have to tell them they're wicked. I have to punish them. I have to beat them up. I have to give them diseases, give them pogroms, give them holocaust. I have to do what I have to do so they survive. But he doesn't mean survive just in this world. He means survive eternally. The neshama that he gave us, the image of God that he gave us, he wants that part to survive. If I let them continue being sinners, continue being idolaters, continue being giant sinners of going with different women that are not allowed to, Michalei Shabbat, eating taref, doing all the things that I find detestable. I'm going to lose them forever. So it's better that they get upset that I call them stupid and stop running to the electric socket. Now does that show that Hashem loves us or hates us? If your father told you, hey honey, you're stupid, but at the same time he got your attention, you realize that if you didn't stop to turn around, a bus passed and just missed you. So in reality, he saved your life. Are you still upset that he called you stupid? Are you still upset that he said you're wicked? No. Because all he want to do is to get your attention. Do you still care that you got the sickness, that you suffered for seven years until you woke up? No. You know he did it for you. Why? Because he loves you. So rebuke only comes out of love, if it's done the right way. And that's what we learned from Pinchas. Pinchas, in this week's parasha, first he had to do what he had to do. He had to kill Zimri and Cosby. He had to kill them. Why? Because he had to save the people. He knew that if he doesn't kill them, the plague will continue and Hashem will continue to kill more and more people. By the time he killed them, already 24,000 people died. And Hashem himself said, if he didn't kill them, I would have killed everyone. Everyone. No nation, no people, no children, nothing. Start all over. Only time in history that Hashem did this. Why? The sin they made crossed all lines. It was even worse than idol worship. What was it? Immodesty with non-Jews. When a Jew and a non-Jew connect together, if it's intimacy, it destroys the world. Why? It destroys Judaism. So Hashem said, I had to do something. I had to get their attention, so I had to start killing people. Pinchas realized it. I had to put a stop to it. But after I put a stop to it, I went to Hashem. I said, no, come on. You had to kill all those people. I had to go back to complain to Hashem. 
Why? Because just like I know he did it because he loves us, I did it because I love him. So the last part of the Mishnah has an extraordinary chidush that if you understand it, Baruch Hashem, I succeeded in giving you a nice chidush, but I think it could change lives. The last part of this Mishnah says, Chavivin Yisrael shenitan lahem kli chemda, chibay etera nodat lahem, shenitan lahem kli chemda, shenemar ki lekach tov natati lachem, torati al tazovu. Beloved are the people of Israel, for cherished, for a cherished utensil was given to them. It is indicative of even greater love that it was made known to them that they were given this cherished utensil. As it is written, For I have given you a good teaching, do not forsake my Torah. Proverbs 14. So, Rabbi Akiva says, First, you should celebrate that I love you because you're alive. That already shows you I love you. Second thing you should celebrate that I let you know. By letting you know I created you in my image. That already shows you that I care that you know that I created you. Third thing is if you're a Jew, a You are one of, you are a statistical impossibility. There are seven and a half billion people in the world. Out of the seven and a half billion people, they say there's somewhere between 15 and 20 million Jews. Out of the 15 to 20 million Jews, only about 2 million are considered Shomrei Mitzvot, that keep Shabbat, keep the basic level of Mitzvot, where they can actually say, if Mashiach comes, they're going to be okay. The other 15 to 18 million have a serious problem. Or 13 to 18 million have a serious problem. Why? Because when you don't keep Shabbat, and you don't keep the basic foundation of Mitzvot, you, my friend, are putting your Judaism in jeopardy. You're putting it on suspension. Mashiach comes, you're on a do not call list. You have a problem. So now, you are one of the few that keeps Shabbat. You're one out of those two million that keeps Shabbat, keeps kosher, has a kosher wife, has a kosher husband, sends the kids to yeshiva, tries to honor Hashem, prays Shachrit, Mincha, Arvit, learns a little bit of Torah. You're a kosher person. You're a statistical impossibility. Why? Think of it. What are the chances that you not only will be born out of 7.5 billion people, but you're going to be one of the 2 million out of the 7.5 billion people? It's much a statistical impossibility. If that's not love from Hashem, that you know that you're one of those people, I don't know what is. So Hashem is telling you the fact that I let you know this, Shows you even more so how much I love you. But even more, even more, I gave Am Yisrael a very, very big sign that I loved them. What did I give them? I gave them my biggest treasure. What's my biggest treasure? My kli, my kli, my tool. What's this tool? Torah. And what's the verse that says that this is the greatest thing? This is my greatest gift. In Proverbs, he says, I have given you a good teaching. Do not forsake my Torah. I've given you this tool that I created the world with. Don't ruin it. In the Gemara Masechet Chagigah, Chazal says that Hashem created the Torah 974 generations 
before he created the world. After creating the Torah with black fire on white fire, which is the reason why the Sefer Torah still follows that tradition. You see that the cloth is white, but the writing is black. That's an indication of how it was originally written. Black fire on white fire. So the original Torah that Hashem wrote was 974 generations before He created the world. But this Torah that He wrote was a blueprint. It was not just the Torah of uh, Adam Rishon, the stories. It's not just that. It's much, much deeper than that. Much, much more than that. There's not enough ink in the world to write what's actually in the Torah. But Hashem says, this tool, I looked at it, and I used it as my tool to create the world. As my instruction set. You know, when you buy your kid little Legos, even though it looks very easy on a drawing, on, on the picture, to build this ship, to build this thing, it looks easy. You know, you put this piece, this piece, this piece. As soon as you open the Lego box, there's 50 million pieces. Like, no, come on. So Mattel and the rest of the toy companies knew that you thought you are going to be able to build it until you opened the box. You saw there's a million pieces. So what do they do? They give you instructions. Step one, put two pieces together. Step two, put six pieces together. Step three, put eight pieces together, little by little. What happens? You're the kid and the kid's watching you. You're building the ship. By the time you finish, the kid's already sleeping six hours. But you're as excited about the Lego as ever. So what happens? Most, most of the Legos, the parents buy, not the kids. The kid just wants the finished product. So now, if a human knows this, then obviously his creator knows even more so. Hashem says, I took the instruction set and I created the world. But this kli, this kli, this tool, what did I do with it? It's the most important tool that ever existed. What did I do with it? I gave it to you. I gave it to you in your hands. Why? What are you going to do with it? So what's the chidush? Just like Hashem took his tool, took the tool of Torah to create this world. This Mishnah is, Mishnah is teaching us that he gave us this tool to show us love. What's this? Why is he giving us this tool to show us love? He says, because I'm going to give you, my son, the ability to take this tool and create for yourself your own Ulam You're going to take the tool that I created this wonderful world and you're going to create yourself your own Ulamaba. But now everyone knows this Mishnah, very well known Mishnah, that says, Kol Yisrael chilek You guys know that Mishnah? Everybody didn't hear this Mishnah before? At the end of every one of the Pirkeavot, we say it. At the end of every Shur, they say it. In the prayer, they say it. Shabbat, they say it. So this is actually a verse from the Torah. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. It says, So here, Isaiah, the same Isaiah that we heard about just moments ago, he's saying, all of your people, all of Israel has a share of the world to come. As it says in Isaiah 60, chapter, uh, chapter 60, verse 21, all your people are righteous, and all your people are righteous, they shall inherit the land forever, a branch of my plantings, my handiwork in which to take pride. 
So this is a misnomer or a big misunderstanding amongst Jews today, especially the ones that look for excuses. Where they say, listen, I don't have to do anything. It says at the end of Tefillah that everyone that's part of Am Yisrael has a share of the world to come. Where they keep Shabbat, don't keep Shabbat. No problem. It doesn't say all of Israel has a share of the world to come if they keep Shabbat. It doesn't say that. It says all of Israel has a share of the world to come. And they stop there. Especially on Shabbat. They say it over there. Now, the problem is that they're not understanding what the verse says. First and foremost, after it says all of Israel has a share of the world to come, it's using a source. What's the source from the Torah? Everything, you can't, just, you can't just say things because you think them. There's a source. There has to be a source. So what does the source actually say? The source says, V'amech kulam tzadikim. First and foremost, it says, your nation, your people are all tzaddikim. So who is it referring to as all of Israel? All of Israel that has the share of the world to come are tzaddikim, not just everyone that's just a, their mother's a Jew. If you're tzaddik, you have, a world, you have a share of the world to come. Now, what does this have to do with this Mishnah? Hashem said to us, I gave you this kli. I gave you this tool so you can make your own ulamaba. But I also gave you hints and verses in the Torah to give you an understanding of what I'm looking for and what I'm expecting from you. So every day you pray, you say this Mishnah, on Shabbat you say it, it's in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, or Masechet Sanhedrin, page 90. It's all over the place. If you only spend a little bit of time to understand what it means, your whole world will change. It says, all of Israel that has a share of the world to come, it's referring to the tzaddikim. It's not referring to just anyone. But why am I giving these tzaddikim? Why am I giving them these tzaddikim, this olam Because they created it. Because it says here, they use my plantings, my handiwork, for which to take pride. Meaning, they took my handiwork, means my tool. They took my tool, my clee that I gave them, my Torah, and they made me proud. Why? Because the Olama Ba that they made for themselves, ah, that's my son. That's my son. Ah, that's my son. That's the one that I brought to the world that was worth waiting 3,000 years for. It was worth it. For him, it was worth it. Why? He took my kli. He took my Torah. He followed it. And now look at the Olam that he has. That's my son. You understand? It's not just, oh yeah, it's, uh, I gave him an opportunity. His mom was Jewish. His dad was Jewish. Or he was just born into a certain community where he just had an attraction to be a Jew. And he converted. He went to the Bedin. He went to the right place. He converted. And then he just decided to be Michal Shabbat. And then he just decided he doesn't want to go to Yeshiva. And then he decided to marry a Goya. And then she decided to marry a Goya. And then they just ruined the whole thing. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. He says, I gave him an opportunity. I gave him the same tool that I used to create the world. I gave him that tool. And he took it. And he made me proud. That's my son. That's why I call Kulam Tzadikim. They're all Tzadikim. Why are Tzadikim? Because they made me proud. That makes it all worth it. So when you see your son, 
breaking the whole house, you're not going to say, ah, you're making me proud that he broke the whole house. But if you see your son take the few pieces of Lego that you bought him, and he's only a few years old, but he takes the few pieces of Lego and he makes an ugly looking house. But he made something. It's like, ah, that's my son. He made something. He made something. He did something. I know he didn't build it like he did on the picture. He wasn't perfect. The picture, it's like a mansion. It's, a, I don't know how they build. It's three stories, house. This thing's coming out. There's moving pieces. He didn't make that. He's not a full tzaddik. He's not Moshe Rabbeinu. But he made a little house. It's still my son. Why? He tried. He tried. He tried. He did something. He did something. He did some tshuva. He kept Shabbat. He kept Talat Mishpachai. He washed his eyes. Okay, so he wasn't the biggest makfid on learning Torah five hours a day. Okay, fine. He learned some. He learned an hour a day, two hours a day. He kept Shabbat the whole way, at least everything that he understood. He tried. That's my son. I'm proud of him. That's what Rabbi Akiva is telling you. Rabbi Akiva is telling you you have all the opportunities in the world. The fact that you are born and alive already shows that Hashem loves you. But always remember that there are conditions. There are conditions to this relationship. And Hashem has to rebuke you. Or has to send someone to rebuke you if you're going in the wrong direction. Why? Because He loves you. You had a question before. Yeah, it's what's written. I mean, apparently, it seems like it because it says in the uh, in the uh, second verse, Pinchas ben Lazar ben Aaron Akohen Eshivet Chamati. So, means, and I didn't destroy them. I didn't destroy all the children of Israel. So, obviously, Moshe Rabbeinu is part of them. And even though in previous parashot, when Moshe said, kill me, don't kill them, uh, he says, uh, no, I'll start a new nation with you. Or even before that, I'll start a new nation with you. And I, Moshe was always excluded out of the list. But apparently, uh, this uh, didn't exclude anyone. This didn't exclude anyone. Of course, obviously, it didn't happen, Baruch Hashem. But the point is that here, Hashem was mamash ready to destroy the entire world. For something that we all take for granted. We think that, you know, we see a friend going out with a non-Jewish girlfriend, we think, ah, okay, he'll, he'll smarten up one day. He'll smarten up one day. You see a friend, uh, you know, I have a bunch of people, they always ask me, oh, listen, my friend's marrying a non-Jew. Can I go to the wedding? Can I go to the wedding? Or oh, my friend's getting married in a reform shul. Can I go to the wedding? Like, do you realize this parasha says that if we're in the days of Sanhedrin, I would have to kill you? Like, do you realize that Hashem almost destroyed the world because of what you're about to do in two hours? You're about to get married, the love of your life? Yeah, great, everything's great. Yeah, Hashem would destroy the world if this was the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Destroy it. How much? So people don't understand it. They don't understand, they don't, it's, they can't get their head around it. It's because they don't know, they don't believe, or somewhere in between. Um, but that's our job. Our job is to educate them and let them understand that you are so important 
and so loved by God that your actions have eternal consequences. When Zimri and Cosby were together, they didn't think, listen, we're going to do this to make Hashem upset. Think about their own head. Whatever they're thinking. He's thinking about her. She's thinking about him. They're going to do whatever they want to do. They're not thinking, we're going to do it against God. They're not doing that. There's actually even some Midrashim that say that Zimri was trying to make peace. Like he thought this was a mitzvah. Point being is that they're not, last thing on their mind is like, let's go upset God. They're not thinking that. But does that thought process make God any less upset? Does that consideration make Hashem any less upset? No. He still wants to destroy the world. So when people say, no, no, but I didn't really want to make Hashem upset when I was driving on Shabbat. I meant to do a mitzvah. I meant to do a mitzvah. I didn't mean to do a mitzvah. It doesn't make a difference. Did you do it or not? A lot of people don't know. Now, do you think that Zimri and Cosby knew that Hashem was going to destroy the world because of them? They didn't know, right? If they knew that Hashem was going to destroy the world, they wouldn't do it, right? Was Hashem going to destroy the world anyway? No. He was going to destroy the world. Why? Because they were going to do it. Why, why didn't he stop? Why didn't he destroy the world? Because Pinchas came in. No, he said, what, well, you think Hashem is like us? Right, but here there's no rainbow. Here he says, that's it, you cross the line. There's no rainbow. Him, yes, he didn't want to destroy Moshe. He wanted to destroy... Exactly my point. You're proving my point. The point is, is that Hashem says, yes, there are certain conditions. There are certain things that I'm going to give you warnings. So, for example, to Noah, he said, every time I get upset, and it's really, you've gotten me to a point where I want to destroy the world, where according to my own laws, not that Hashem has levels of being upset, but just his own laws, Every time you've crossed the line, I'm going to put a rainbow as an indication that if it wasn't for the promise I made to Noah, I would destroy the world. That's Every time there's a rainbow, you shouldn't say, oh, look, 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 look. It's not. Why? Because in essence, what you're saying is that, look, Hashem is upset. He wants to really destroy the world, but he can't. Why? Because he promised Noah, and he can't go against his own word. So now here, every time we have a, we have a, uh, we have a rainbow, it's that... According to the promise he made with Noah, then this is the pro- this promise is being delivered. With Moshe Rabenu, the same thing. He said, Moshe, let me destroy them and start a whole new people from you. Moshe says, No, destroy me first, meaning destroy all of us or nothing. He said, Okay, I'm not going to destroy them and I'm not going to destroy because I don't want to destroy you. But here, there's no warning. Why? Because the deals that he made with Moshe. And the deals that he made with Noach didn't include this. This is off limits. There is no deal for this. Why? Because the whole purpose of the world is to fulfill the Torah. The only person that could have given the Torah to Am Yisrael was Moshe Rabbeinu. If Moshe Rabbeinu said to Hashem, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be the prophet. Hashem would have had to destroy the world. Then we go further. 
after Moshe Rabbeinu takes Am Yisrael, brings him to Mount Sinai. Brings him to Mount Sinai. According to Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 88, it says that Hashem bent the mountain. He made bent the mountain like it's a chupa. It covered the people. Why did it cover the people? It says, he said to Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael, now is the time for me to give you my Torah. If you accept it, this is our chupa. This is our marriage. We're going to be together forever. If you don't, this is going to be your burial ground. The ceiling will collapse on top of you. Meaning, there is really no choice here. So, Chazal asks, like, what kind of chupa is this? Is this even a legal marriage? You're forcing Am Yisrael to marry you. So, Abarbanel and also a few others of the sages give an amazing response. He says, the whole world knew that the only reason it was created was for Hashem to give us the Torah. If Am Yisrael would not accept the Torah, no one else could accept the Torah. If Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to give us the Torah, no one else can give us the Torah. If these things can't happen, there's no purpose for the world. So not only does Am Yisrael have no purpose at that point, but no one has a purpose. So Hashem has to go back on His deal that He made with the planet, the angel that's responsible for the planet. The Gemara Masechet HaGad says He made a deal with Him. What's the deal? He says on Yom HaShishi, on Friday, this is the, uh, I'm going to call that day, all the days I said this is Yom Rishon, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, Yom Revi. But Yom Shishi, he said Yom HaShishi. And, uh, and if you look at Parashat Bereshit, He added the letter He to the word Shishi. So Chazal says, what's this extra letter? Why is there an extra letter when he says Sunday, or the first day, it's Rishon, not Harishon, not the, not the first. It just says first. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. But Friday, it says the Friday, the sixth day. Why? It says because that's an indication of the deal he made with the angel that's responsible for the planet Earth. What was the deal? The deal was that on Shabbat, I'm going to give the nation of Israel, the five books of Moses. Indication with the letter He, which is the number five. I'm going to give them the five books of Moses. If they accept it, we'll celebrate Shabbat together. We'll celebrate the rest of Shabbat together. If they don't, we're going back to Tova Vo. I'm destroying the world. You're not going to be anymore. So Gemara says that when Am Yisrael arrived at Mount Sinai, all of the angels were shaking. What if they say no? What if they say no? If they say no, that's it, we're all doomed. So Chazal says, the reason why Hashem put the canopy on top of them, He said, if you take it, good, we'll celebrate Shabbat together. If not, you die. Why? Because He's a responsible God. Do you really think He's going to leave all of creation that also has a purpose up to chance? Maybe they're going to say no. What kind of God is that? That's a teenager, not a God. So he didn't give them the option of saying no. Why? Because he didn't want to destroy them or the rest of his creations. The same goes with Noah. The same goes with Moshe Rabbeinu. But also the same goes with Pinchas. He didn't want to destroy us. But there's a line that we crossed. What was the line? The difference between the line of, of Noah and Moshe Rabbeinu and what happened with Pinchas, in Noah, they were going against each other. Hashem says, 
they're too far gone. They ruined the creation. We have to start all over again. With Moshe Rabbeinu, they went against me. But they still, some of them still stay righteous. But with the Maaseh, what happened with Balak and Bilam and, and, and Parshat Pinchas is that now they're destroying our connection. Why? Now they're becoming goyim. Now they're trying to take the fact that they're chosen and they're trying to undo it. If they're going to undo it, let me help them. I'll destroy them and that's it. There's no point because without them, there's no point. That's why there was no warning. Because without them, no one's going to get the Torah. Without the Torah, what, what is Moshe going to give? Without Moshe, no one's going to give. Without, it all goes back to Maaseh Bereshit. We're going back to Tovavo. Finish the entire Torah. We have more questions. Yeah. How do you deal with a person that knows all this and probably more? But they carry it. What they what they gonna do? What they will? They obviously know the truth, but they just don't want to admit it. No, they don't believe. No, they believe. They don't believe. Someone that knows the truth and doesn't follow it is either someone that you need to send to a mental institution. No, no, I'm telling you. Baruch Hashem, I have a little bit of Nisayon. There's only two types of people that don't follow what God said. Either they don't know or they don't believe. It's impossible to be one of the other, something else. And the reason why is because if I tell you, okay, guys, I'm sorry to inform you but out of all the Coca-Cola bottles that you have in front of you, and Sprite and whatever else is there, one of the bottles has poison in it. I know it because I put it there. I put the poison inside the bottle. So I, you don't have to like... I did it. I did it. For sure. It's one of them. You know there's poison in one of them. For sure. No doubt. I'm crazy. I put poison are you going to drink it? Why are you not going to drink it? Because you know there's poison, right? Because you're not crazy like me. To, you drink the poison. I put the poison. It's already crazy enough. One crazy is too much. Two crazies already. We have a revolution. So now, you know the truth. So you're not going to go against it. Same thing goes with somebody else. If he doesn't, somebody comes out from the outside, he doesn't know. I just announced I put poison. He goes straight to the first Coke bottle. He takes a drink. Why did he drink? Because he doesn't know. Those are the only two options. Someone here in this room that goes and drinks anyway and takes a chance, he's crazier than the guy that put the poison. So he's either crazier or he just doesn't believe me. He says, nah, come on, this guy's teaching Torah. He's not going to put poison. He's probably just wanted to scare us. Just to prove some example, one of his crazy parables. He doesn't believe it's poison. That's the only types of people that don't listen to the Torah. If you know what it says, and you still don't follow it, it's either you don't believe it, you think it's just like a Harry Potter book, no different, or you don't know the significance of going against God. Now, most people that violate Shabbat don't know anything. Some that violate Shabbat know a few things and they make it seem like they know a lot more. They know a few verses by heart, they make it like they're Rashi. 
You know, they, they know a few, uh, you know, proverbs. They make it like shlom, they taught Shlomo Melech Torah. People don't know as much as, as they say they do. Trust me, I see it all day. People pretend to know a lot more. And if you're saying, I'm giving you Chidushim, that's not a compliment. That's just as if you don't know much. In reality, it's not to insult myself. It's just a reality. Real Tamidim Chachamim. It's beyond me. So, when many of these people that tell me they've been learning in yeshivot all their life are telling me they're listening to my Torah, I say, wow, I don't know what kind of Torah you listen to. I mean, Abba Hashem, I have Siat Vishmaya, Hashem gives me Torah to learn. But seriously, by now, 25, 30 years of learning Torah, you should have surpassed me. Why are you learning for me? So people don't know as much as you think. The most important part is that people don't know anything at all about punishment. Why don't they know about punishment? Because this is a part of the Torah they do not teach. You could only learn this on your own. Baruch Hashem, I did. I took some time and I went to learn about the punishment. It's not pretty. It's terrible. Horrible. Everything I've told you guys for the last three years, it's much, much worse. And I'll give you this as an example. I said this in last week's you. I went to my Rav, Rav Ephraim. It's one of my Chavuta, taught me most of what I know. Him and Rav Mizrahi have been the biggest con- contribution to my Torah. And I went to him and I told him, listen, teach me about Genom. I want to know. I want to know about Genom. I want to know what happens. He says, no. So what do you mean? Everything else you want to teach me? Teach me about Ganom. I want to learn about Ganom. No, let's learn about Ganadin. I said, well, hey, I want to learn about Ganadin. No, I don't want to learn about Ganadin. Ganadin's great. I don't, I don't want to learn about Ganadin. I want to learn about Ganadin. I want to know what happens. Is it true? Is it this? What happens? No. For years, years, I'm begging him to teach me about Ganadin. It's not once or twice. There's a few things he's not willing to tell me. Everything else is willing. Everything is off limits. Is uh, is is uh, you know is allowed except a couple of things. One, learning about Gainom. Two is how many is telling me how many times he finished the shas. No one knows this. No one knows. He's not. He's he's refu- only person that knows is his wife. No one else knows how many times he finished the shas. All we do know is that before he was twenty, he finished the shas Yerushalmi and Bavli four times. Now, Talmud Chacham usually finishes one of them every seven years. Before he was 20, he finished four times. So it's 28 years, so he's running a little fast. Oh, Hashem. After that, no one knows. No one knows how many times he finished the Shaz. No one knows anything. Oh, Hashem is a very, very humble person. I asked him a million times. How many times? He refused to tell me. Second thing I asked him is, teach me about gain. No, no. A lot of times, I, and I'm a little bit annoying sometimes. When I want to know something, I ask, I ask, I ask. Nothing. So one day I go and I'm like, come on. No, I already by now, already, Baruch Hashem, I'm learning to a few years. I already learned about Genom myself. Books, I know a few books. I found a few books. I started reading. Started, I started learning, but I want to go deeper into it. I know he has further knowledge. So teach me more. He says, still no. I said, by now I already know all the horrible things. They take, they this, they this, that. I know already. So what do you care? He says... I'm not going to teach you. I said, why, why, why? He says to me, listen, when we first met, 
you told me that all the health problems you had and all the money problems you had and all the difficulties you had, you told me that you know what Gehenom looks like. You know what it feels like to go through Gehenom. You had abscesses and infections and surgeries and your friends stealing from you. Worst, horrible things. I said, yeah. He goes, well, I don't want to disappoint you. Now, it took me a few minutes to understand it. But in so many words, what he told me is that it's drastically worse. Drastically worse. So everything I've told you guys over the last few years, where people are scared of some of my lectures, oh, he's scary, 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 it's drastically worse. So anyone who violates the law doesn't know. Why don't they mention it? Never. Are you asking me why they don't mention it? <sighs> uh, here's the problem. On one hand, there's a belief that's infested the nation like a disease where we live in a generation where our leaders think that we're all mentally deficient. Retarded, spiritually retarded. We are not able to handle ourselves. We're not able to take the truth. This is the reason why politicians feel okay with themselves when they go to sleep, despite the fact that there's a part of the United States or some other country that has a plague in it that's killing thousands of people every minute, but they don't report it on the news. Why? They can't handle the truth. This is why when there's bad medicine that's in the public, they don't report right away. And it takes months to hit the actual wires, the reason why they can't handle the truth. This is why when there's major wars happening in the world, we don't know about it until it's already over. Why? Because they can't handle the truth. This mentality also infested Judaism. And unfortunately, many of the leaders feel like you cannot handle the truth. Now, it's true to some extent. There is truth to it to some extent. Now you can't have someone who knows absolutely nothing show up to a shul the first time in his life and you start telling him about the details of Genom that's written in the book Rishit Chokhmah. That you can't do. Why? Because he'll want to kill himself after the shul. You can't, you can't, no, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't. He, he has, he has one, one shul that, Rami Zrahi has one shul that he talks about Genom, but it's not published online. You can only get it on DVD from him personally. But as far as real details, the stuff you guys hear online is nothing. I'm telling you. From I'm telling you. I read. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's 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 like uh, it's like uh, I don't know. What are those little bears? Care bears. The stuff you hear from me, the stuff you heard, you've heard from Rabbi Mizrahi for the last twenty years, twenty-three years, is care bears next to the truth. Care bears, little gummy bears, tiny, cute. If you knew the truth, it's much much worse. So most people can't handle that part. They can't. And the people that, if you tell them that it doesn't affect them, it just means they're sick in their mind. 
or they don't believe it. So it's right that you can't give all of that truth to people. It's right. It's 100% right. Where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong? We went wrong. We went too extreme. The extreme truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you can't tell people right away. You can't tell your kid when he's two years old that he can't be with a girlfriend until he's married. Why? Because he doesn't even know what a girl is yet. He's two years old. Said though. But at the same time, you can't just not talk to him until he's 20, because then he's going to be a mute. That's where we went wrong. We went from not telling them the biggest to not telling them anything. So now somebody drives to shul on Shabbat for 25 years, no one tells him anything. Why? He's coming to shul. He'll find that on his own. Someone that's eating tarif in his own restaurant, he doesn't know there's anything wrong with it. No, it's okay. Why? I'm selling it to the goyim. I'm selling tarif to the goyim. What's the problem with selling tarif to the goyim? I'm not eating it. You're not allowed to deal with it. It says in the Torah, you're not allowed to eat milk and meat three times. Three times in the Torah, it mentions the same verse. Don't uh, cook the uh, deer in his mother's milk. Why? Why is, why is the same verse mentioned in the, in the Torah three times? Same exact verse three times. Why? Because three different prohibitions. First one, don't eat it. Second one, don't cook it. Third one, don't benefit from it. Meaning, if you accidentally put cheese on your burger, you can't even, obviously you know you can't cook it, you made a mistake. Obviously you know you can't eat it, even if you take off the cheese because it's already too late. But you can't even give it to your dog. Forget about selling it. You can't even give it to your dog for free. Why? Because if you give it to your dog for free, you're benefiting by the fact that you won't have to give him dog food. So you're benefiting monetarily. So there's no way that you can benefit out of milk and meat. So this stuff is in the Torah. It's easy to teach people. What's hard to teach people? It's hard to teach people to tell them, listen, if you don't keep Shabbat, According to the Rambam, Ilchot Shabbat, chapter 30, according to the Shulchan Aruch in seven places, including the section about Shechita. Shechita, you look at the section Shulchan Aruch about Shechita, it's one of the seven places it says, a Jew that doesn't keep Shabbat and does Shechita, does slaughtering, you're not allowed to eat his meat. It's considered 100% tarif. Why? It's like an idol worshiper cut the meat. And if an idol worshiper cut the meat, it's not kosher. It's not kosher. Idol worshiper cut the meat, it's not kosher. A Jew cut the meat, it's kosher. He said, yeah, but he's a, his mom is Jewish. He goes, no, if he doesn't keep Shabbat, he's an idol worshiper. It's one of the seven places. So that's hard to tell people. Why? You tell people, your friends, family, neighbors, all the people you love, you tell them, listen, I love you and everything, but according to Hashem, you're an idol worshiper. What idol worshiper? Look at the scar of David I have. It's bigger than my head. It's all full of diamonds. Diamonds, no diamonds. You're still an idol worshiper in Hashem's eyes. That's the hard part to tell people. But if we don't tell them, we hate them. Not lose them. We hate them. Why? Because they're running to the socket with the fork. So that's where we went wrong. Telling them about the details of Ganom, no good. Right, don't tell them. Not telling them anything, like politicians, it's also not good. You have to go in the middle. Tell them the basics. Shabbat, it's not negotiable. You keep it, you're in good shape. You don't keep it, there is no shape. You're destroyed. That's it. There's certain things that you have to do. But unfortunately, people don't do it. Now, the biggest reason of why they don't do it is money. 
I'm only telling you that because I come from a world of only money. I know more about money than most people in the world. Because I lived in a world that the only thing we had, the only commodity we had, was money. That's what we sold. We bought and sold money. People came to invest money so they can buy money and make more money. So it goes back to the house that houses money. Yes, it was in the form of stocks and companies and so on, but the whole point was money. I was in a world of money. I had money. They had money. Everyone had money. If you didn't have money, you weren't around me. If you wanted to be around me, you had to have money. So the people that wanted money either worked for me or they came for staka. So Baruch Hashem, there was a lot I know about money. And I can tell you that the reason why most people do what they do is money. That's the idol worship of today. So the reason why most rabbis will not tell you that a Mechalel Shabbat is considered an idol worshiper, that someone that wastes seed on purpose is destroying their Olam Abba, that someone that goes out with a Goya is destroying is Olamaba, is Parnasa, and pretty much everything in between. And all of these things that are hard to hear but are very much a reality of our world today, the reason why is because they know that if they tell you that, you won't come back. And it's not so much that they care about you. It's that they care about your tzedakah. They care about your money. If they cared about you, they tell you the truth. They tell you to stop going to the socket and putting the fork in. If they cared about you, they tell you, listen, honey, I know it's fun to get electrocuted, but stop. It's dangerous. Once One of those times, it's going to hurt. But the pain's going to last forever. If they cared about you, they tell you, honey, please, I know it's cute, it's fun, and you run away every time. But one, one of these days, you're going to get stuck that way. It's not a game. Okay, Hashem's sending you tests. You lost 50 bucks. You lost 500 bucks. You got a flat tire. Your girlfriend left you. You failed a test. Okay, it's small little tests. It's fun and games. You think you're, you know. But one of these times it's going to hurt permanently. Then what? So if they cared about you, 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 they cared about you, they tell you, honey, stop. Because you're playing with fire. Eventually it's going to explode. Eventually the bomb's going to work. You press the button. Even though the button is like not working, for, eventually it's going to work. But by the time you realize it works, it's too late. So if they care about you, they tell you that. So that's why I say they don't care about you. They care about your tzedakah. And that's why they care about you not coming back to shul. Because if you come back to shul, you give tzedakah. You don't come back to shul, you don't give tzedakah. And this is a great example of today. I told a story a few weeks ago. A woman told me that she was going to Chabad for many years. She started doing tshuva five years ago. But tshuva, tshuva. She started being modest, which is the hardest mitzvah for a woman, to such an extent she was wearing a kisu rosh. Kisu rosh with mitpachat for a woman might as well be a rabbanit. In today's age, it's Miriam, Sarai Menu. Woman wears kisu rosh, it's kosher kisu rosh. Wow, amazing, it's hard to find. Sometimes you see kisu rosh with a miniskirt. That's not modest. That's just style. You see, no, there's a lot of people. They wear kisu rosh, but they have a miniskirt and a tank top. 
That's just style. That's not kisurosh. That's not modesty. Talk about kisurosh when a woman is actually mamash modest. It's very hard to find these days, even if they're rabbaniot. So this woman was telling me my modesty was more than the rabbanit of the shul. My clothes were wide. My kisurosh was this. Everything was great. Four years straight, I'm doing this. He says, then I saw one of your lectures, and it changed my life. Already modest. Sarai Menu. How can I change Sarai Menu's life? I can't change the dust she walked on. I can't change. What can I do? She says, no. Then I realized that I'm a walking Chilul Hashem, she says. How can a woman that's modest with Kisui Rosh, more modest than Rabbanit, be Chilul Hashem? She says, I realize I'm a Chilul Hashem because when I'm driving to the rabbi's house on Shabbat with my Kisui Rosh, other people look at me and it doesn't look good. You're driving on Shabbat to where? To the rabbi's house with the Kisurosh. And she said, the first time I realized it was when I was one of your lectures. You talked about Shabbat and all of those things. And from that moment on, I decided to stop driving on Shabbat and I've been keeping Shabbat Baruch Hashem for the last year. So I said this story a few weeks ago. What's the Chidush? Chidush always has to be a chidush. Can't repeat stuff. The guy's not going to come anymore. Chidush was today. Before I come to the lecture today, she sends me a uh, message, copies the message from the rabbi. The rabbi sent her a message. He says, oh, I wish, this is a Chabad rabbi. This is not necessarily a representation of all of Chabad because the real Chabad are tzaddikim. Unfortunately, today, there's more fakers than there is real ones. But unfortunately, this guy ends up as, as a Chabad rabbi. And he says, oh, we miss you so much in our keilah. I'm hoping and praying that one day you relent and start driving back to our shul and to my house every Shabbat. This imbecile, kofel, rasha merusha, is encouraging her to what? To drive on Shabbat. And he's an Orthodox rabbi, Chabad. Has a kilah for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. He's writing in an email, I can't wait for you to relent, to give up this dream that you have and drive back to us on Shabbat. He knows he's driving on Shabbat. You understand what's happening here? Why? He doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about her husband. He doesn't care about our kids. He doesn't care about our grandkids. He doesn't care about anybody. Who does he care about? His pocket. He cares about his pocket. That's the same thing for all those people that came to my office for years. They say they love me. They say they cared about me. But in reality, as soon as the money and the well dried up, they disappear too. That's just the reality. So, as far as why doesn't why don't people teach it? It's because of Eloi Zav, Eloi Kesef, Eloi Zav, the God of money, the God of gold. Hashem says don't follow it, but unfortunately a lot of people with a beard follow it. Doesn't mean everyone does, doesn't mean that they're all bad, but the fact that it's a disease, that it, that is the plague that's happening still till now, no question about it. We need a Pinchas. We need a Pinchas. The plague ended after 24,000 people died. Today we have millions dying. Millions dying every day. Spiritual deaths are happening every single day. People are intermarrying. 
people are going against God, people are starting website against rabbis, people are much destroying their own ulamaba. Every single day. Every, if you just think of the numbers, some big rabbi did a lecture, he says if you just look at how many Jews we would have just since the Holocaust till now, if we just didn't have abortions, if it was just without abortions, already we would have almost 36 million. Just without abortions. Huh? Clearly, we would have 36 million more Jews if there wasn't abortions. Just abortions. We're not talking about intermarriage. We're not talking about, uh, you know, anything else. Just abortions. If there was no intermarriage, another 50 million. I mean, you start tacking on the numbers... Before you know it, we're bigger than China. At the very, if you think about it, we came before the Chinese. The Sini, Sini in Hebrew is Chinese. The Sini came after Shem. He was Shem's grandson. So, at the very least, they have almost 2 billion. We should have 2 billion. At the very least, we should have the same. I heard from uh, Rav Zitron, my friend in New York, Tzaddik, he did an lecture recently, and he said 2,000 years ago, somebody did some statistics. They said that there was approximately 14 million Jews back then, and there was 25 million Chinese people. 14 million, 25 million. 2,000 years. 2,000 years later, we're still 14 million. They're 2 billion. Why? We don't rebuke people. We don't tell them, stop going to the electric outlet. We keep letting them go. Go electric outlet. Yeah, but it's intimate. Let him go. Let him go. Find out on his own. Go electric outlet. No, but Mechal Shabbat, Motiumat. No, let him go. Let him go. Go electric No, no, no. It's reform. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's Sadducees. It's, it's, it's all of these things. Go. They keep letting them go to the electric outlet. Why? Because they don't love you. They don't love you. They love your money. That's as tachless as it gets. How do I know? I was one of them. I was one of, I'm the, I am the example. I am the example of why it doesn't work, of why mamash, if you don't have a merit, Rambam, Rambam says in the Chut Shuvah, he says, at the end of times, not everybody's going to be happy. Not everybody's going to be happy the Mashiach came. It actually says in Masechet Ta'anit also. Masechet Ta'anit says, when, at the end of times, not everybody's going to be happy the Mashiach came. Why? Not everybody's going to be saved. He says you have to have schut to do tshuva at the end of times. You have, to have, you have to have merit to do tshuva at the end of times. You have to have merit. So, you think about it this way. I had two to three people come to my office every week. 15 years. Let's just make the numbers easy. 10 years. And let's make the numbers easy. One person a week. Not three. One person a week, every week, 10 years. How many is that? 520. No, come on. No, come on. You guys sleeping? It's only midnight. One person a week, 52 weeks. Yes, 52 times 10. You add a zero to the 52. 520. Good answer. Okay, so 520. That means you had with your beer and you had your tzedakah box 520 chances to tell me, Mr. Reuven, you're married to Goya. Oh, Mr. Reuven. Shabbat. It's the electric outlet. It's the electric outlet, Mr. Reuven. But thank you for the stakah. 
See this, Mr. Ruben. You're eating not kosher. Run. Do something. Even if you get the sakar, run. But tell me something. 520 times when are you going to tell me? When? When is it going to work? When is it going to work? If you had 15 years, and it was two to three people a week, not one person a week, that obviously means that the 520 is a low estimate, but even with 520, if, it didn't, if you didn't do it after 500 times, when are you going to do it? When is this system going to work? When? The slowest system of one day is going to realize it. When is it going to work? That's the mentality. Say, no, no, he's going to realize it on his own. When is he going to realize it? When? That's why I say they don't care about you. They don't care about me. They care about money. It's bottom line. I'm telling you this. There's someone that's in it. Someone that was out of it. I see it. It's just a reality. doesn't mean everyone. doesn't mean they're all bad. But we all have to be real. We all have to just see things as they are. You give someone staka, double check. Double check, where's the money going? Is it going to expand his kitchen or is it going to help Am Yisrael? Mabruk, you want to expand the kitchen? Fine, I just don't want to pay for it. You want an extension to your house? Mabruk, enjoy! I don't want to pay for it though. Enjoy! I don't want to pay for it though. I want to help people to draw. I want to get Hashem's little children that are running into sockets, that put their fingers into the sockets, put their entire bodies into the electric socket. I want to take them out and return them to God. Here, God, he's a little electrocuted, but you have, it's your job now. It's your pride. I took him out of the socket. He's a little burnt. His hair is a little off. He's got a few scars, but he's here. Here. Good luck. I brought him back. I did my job. After that, it's Hashem's job. But to pay for his kitchen, to pay for the extension, to pay for the new car, for the third car, for the fourth car, for the fifth car, and for the extended beard, I'm not paying. It's not my job. You want to do it, Mabruk? Enjoy! No problem. I have nothing against rich people. I used to be one of them. Nothing against them. I just don't want to pay for it. Because that's, according to this Mishnah, I don't get any schal for that. I don't get any schal. I don't get any reward for making people rich. Nothing. So... Before you guys give tzedakah, ask yourself a question. What's the toilet? What's the point of this tzedakah? Where is it going? Why am I giving it? And last but not least, ask yourself, did I achieve my mission in these next three weeks when I arrive to Bet HaMikdash and I'm supposed to cry? Am I crying? Or am I looking at the guy that's crying asking, why is he crying? Baruch Adonai Amen Amen.